podcast this week, we celebrate the very best of British as Paddington's chum, Mr. Brown, a.k.a. Hugh Bonifield, drops by for a chat. And also making a triumphant return to the podcast is the next Paddington villain, Rosamund Pike, star of I Care A Lot. All that plus usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is about to celebrate two very major landmarks indeed. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. If I sound slightly different this week, then my apologies if I don't sound as good and as pristine as normal. There's a very good reason for that. It is because for the first time in over a year, I am on set of a movie. Well, not right now. I am in a hotel in a location, undisclosed location, and I can't say where I am, but don't worry. It's all very COVID safe and COVID compliant and I haven't seen anyone who hasn't been tested and hasn't cleared the test and I had to test myself and I... And a nurse came to my flat and stuck something up my nose and then something down my throat. And I hope it was a nurse, actually, in hindsight. <laughs> Didn't ask for ID. Anyway, uh, I passed the test and I don't have COVID. The first time I've been glad to not pass a test. So anyway, here I am in a hotel room, but I am joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning, neither of whom are in hotel rooms. Uh, they are in their usual evil lairs. I am joined, of <laughs> course, by geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. And Nurb Stormtrooper, James Dyer. Hello, Chris. <laughs> Hello, Jimbo. How the devil are you both? Good. It's early, but we're good. It is very early. It's an ungodly hour. Yeah. You've woken us up at the crack of dawn to record mm -hmm. a podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm about to go on set. You've got to do something. And Helen, you've got a big old day ahead, haven't you? Is, this, is today, am I right in thinking, today is... Book the day, day. The, the publication of Helen O'Hara's 101 Facts About Old Movies. Is that, that's, that's what it's called? Uh, uh, yeah, well, we, we considered that, but we went with Women versus Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. It's out! I don't have to, like, not have it out anymore. It's great. I can, you know, talk about it and such. And people can read it and ask me questions. It's good. Hooray. Are you having a virtual book launch party? Uh, in and a why manner wasn't of I invited? speaking, <laughs> uh, in a manner of speaking, that well, I'll probably be on like do a Zoom with some friends later. Uh, obviously, you you weren't invited to that, um, and um, I I don't know. There's been talk of like Instagram lives and other things that I don't understand. So are you going to do a Reddit AMA? Ask <laughs> yeah, me anything. I'm very much not. But I do have um, my my very good friend Cat Brown brought me round the world's greatest cake last night, which has you know stars of the silver screen all around the top and a sort of film reel canister thing and it says women versus Hollywood and it has a red carpet and it's amazing. So I have an enormous cake to eat. So I feel like that's a celebration in itself. No talent. Celebrations are smaller and they come in variety packs. It's, it's <laughs> no, no, the cake is full of celebrations. Amazing. Probably. I'm in. <laughs> um, is this also to, ce to celebrate this launch of your book? Is this why you are currently dressed as Black Widow? Well, no, but I, we're recording very early in the morning. So my, I would usually be running. So I'll be running after this. Hence running yes. and fighting crime. And for obviously fighting crime. I live in New Cross, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and James is, uh, because it's very early in the morning, James is completely nude. Uh, That's which true. Is... That's true. <laughs> it's just a throwback to when we used to do Naked News together in the morning. Naked so news. I thought Naked Podcast was the way to go. Of course, it didn't occur to me that podcast has a video element, but I'm just going to roll with it, <laughs> so to speak. Just in case anyone is concerned, Naked News was done from our respective homes. Um, Helen, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were in the office? Oh, man. We used to have to try and get up like at six or seven o'clock in the morning and do news. So it would be all online when, when you guys got up at 9am. Hence, it got called Naked News. Yeah. Yeah. 
That was when, and it, I think it was because we did it so early in the morning that it went so wildly off the rails and the news would regularly be brought to you by Petey the Movie News Puppy and Sammy the Movie News Sloth. There was a menagerie mm-hmm. of animals that used to appear in our news stories. Yoda the Movie News Jedi. Yeah. Oh my God. It's astonishing yeah. we were actually, you know, that we're still in employment. Not fired. Mm. Yeah. No, 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 those news stories were fun, you know. They didn't have any mention of chicken thigh recipes. It was all good. <laughs> They, they, you know, they didn't cater for SEO searches and all that stuff. I love was, that we've descended fine. now into the kind of in-jokery <laughs> that literally no more than five people in the world will understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those five people right now are finding that very funny, believe they me. Are. Hello, they James are. White. Hello, Sam Toy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude. Actually, I don't like chicken thighs. I prefer chicken breasts. I don't eat chicken thighs. It's vile. I'm, I'm... It's vile. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's vile. It's the most satanic part of the chicken. Um, but, uh, but yeah, back to Helen, back to Helen, uh, because this is a momentous day. Um, you have finally finished your book. Yes. Yeah. Just last night, really. It was mm-hmm. a bit of an essay crisis at the last minute. And uh, in the end, <laughs> in conclusion, <laughs> women are a land of contrasts. Who could truly say there for the who last will line. win, women or Hollywood? <laughs> Perhaps one day we will find out ellipses. I can tell you that I mean that there was a bit of discussion about the title. They kept trying to come up with like movie quotes that would work as a title, and mm-hmm. I none of them really worked for me. And and I kept pushing for some something like Hollywood's War on Women. I think was my first gambit, and they thought that was a bit martial. So we settled on <laughs> Women versus Hollywood, which is of course much less martial. So that's fine. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like at one point it was going to be nobody puts baby in a corner. And I'm like, well, okay, first of all, we shouldn't call women baby. And and second of all, they have put women in a corner. So I'm not sure that entirely works, you know. Yeah, that feels also from an era point of view, it just doesn't seem to work, does it? I I didn't think it quite covered it. So I can see what they were kind of going for, but I I don't think that was quite quite right. So I'm very happy with what we have. And they played a blinder. Like, it looks really nice. You know, it like feels nice. Like, if I just rub it next to the microphone, listen to that. Helen, do never rub your book on camera in a work capacity. You can get fired. Never Sorry. rub it next to the microphone. We've, uh, we've all learned that. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Of course, I should have listened to your many, many emails on that subject. So, yeah. Yes. Um, it's more James and I's private DMs, uh, actually, <laughs> Helen. Oh, okay. uh, so I don't know how you were privy to those. Oh, my no. God. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. What's happening? What's happening? Um, so, yeah, but congratulations. Well done Thank you. on the Thank book. You. you are the third member of the pod team, Nick and Terry, before you, uh, to have written and released a book. Um, and you're all absolutely insane. I've seen what, it, what it's done to you, <laughs> but uh, well done. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're all <laughs> shells and shadows of our former selves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's true. No, it's it's. It's fantastic. So, so for the people who haven't listened to the last 45 podcasts, in which you've mentioned it every single week, <laughs> like James with the By the TV podcast, uh, <laughs> what exactly is Women versus Hollywood? What's it about? 380 pages. Thanks very much. But uh, r- <laughs> roughly, uh, sum it up. What's your elevator pitch? It's uh, the past, present and future of women in Hollywood. So looking at why we're at the level of low representation that we are in terms of you know directors, leading characters, etc. How we got there, why what have been the sort of structural elements that have contributed to that and, and hopefully in an entertaining, fun way and with lots of slagging off of the Joker and lots of mentions of the MCU mm. because, you know, it's still my book. So, Portals? Uh, hmm? Portals? Uh, Portals 
doesn't specifically get a mention. I should have talked about portals. Oh my That's god. It. That's really It's bad. the last page. It's just <laughs> chapter portals and then just we should portals. talk about portals. We should talk about portals. Yeah. But no, but it, so it literally starts in the silent era when there were loads of or at least some female directors and studio owners and loads of female writers and um and then they just kind of got shut out by the studio era and then the studio era baked in certain inequalities that we're still trying to get rid of and the new Hollywood and the movie brats and all that kind of you know innovation didn't quite go far enough in terms of opening the doors to women as well as you know those young and very talented men so basically that's kind of the history bit and then I'm kind of looking at some of the you know stuff that we deal with now so me too and female directors and what effect franchise movies have on this kind of inequality and so on so i mean that sounds, probably sounds quite dry but i've tried not to make it dry honestly i've jokes? tried to make it interesting yeah jo- i mean jokes is a very strong word i you know there's hopefully some there might be a wry chuckle in there somewhere a wry chuckle a wry chuckle. chuckle there you go <laughs> i'll definitely read it for my wry chuckle <laughs> There's your cover quote for the paperback. <laughs> Ride chuckle guaranteed, but just one singular chuckle. Just one. Oh my God. Well, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And it's available now. It's in hardback. It's in um, hardback. It's on audiobook. It's on ebook. It's in, you know, all good and evil new bookshops. Yeah. yeah. Helen asked me to read the audiobook naturally. So I, James, explain the entire book in your ears, which is, which is nice for everyone. That's why you're not invited to the Zoom. As you'll understand, is. Uh... <laughs> Women are like men. Only a bit pointier in places. Um, pointier. <laughs> you know, because of, of the... You've gone full Steve Carell. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get all biological on you here, Helen, uh, you know, but there, there are pointy bits. Although men have pointy bits as well. Um, right? So, I mean, I just feel like, yeah, okay. Wow. Well, this could get complicated. This, is, this, uh, this has gone in an unexpected direction. This is why I'm not writing any books. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, great content. My, this is great content. Is. As Martin Scorsese might agree, this is fantastic content. Um, <laughs> he loves that word. Mm. He does love that word, doesn't he? Um, he's in the book. He's not a woman, no. He's not no, a woman. No, he's mentioned a couple of times. Okay. Because he's always written such strong female characters? Um, No, because, well, just in in terms of the the very good work that he's done, he has supported female directors uh, quite um, quite a bit in his career. And of course, not physically, physically, that would be inappropriate and um, (laughs) has done incredible work in film preservation. So yay, Scorsese in that respect. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Indeedly beadly. Very, very quickly, because we have to uh, finish this week's podcast in record time, which explains why there's no three facts structured this week, folks. And, And for the first time... In my life, I would like to register a formal objection to the excision of the three-fact structure because I have prepared perhaps the most rambling, tedious fact yet. And I was extremely excited to be able to filibuster for a full 45 minutes and you've you know fucked what? it. I shouldn't have told you that it was cancelled and then just let you go on and then just cut it out from the podcast. Um, but if your fact, if your research into your fact uh, was as rigorous as your spelling of the word Punxsutawney um, in your squadcast name this week, which you managed to get spectacularly wrong. Yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> I just, well done in the X. seemed the way to spell it and yet apparently not. Okay. Four more weeks of winter, folks. Four more weeks of winter. Six. Six! God. So that two right. of your Groundhog Day related facts were incorrect. So what you're saying is I have only put in sort of very rudimentary sort of research groundwork to my facts. Yeah. Correct, yes. Or Groundhog yeah. work, if you groundhog will. Groundhog work. Hey. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I was going to mention very, very quickly before we get on to the listener question section of the podcast, uh, I was going to mention very quickly, Helen has a landmark this week. Her book is out today as we are recording. And today, as you're listening, if you listen on Friday, is a landmark for me because folks... 
It is my 20th anniversary at Empire. Yay! Today? Today. This very day? February 19th. So tomorrow, as people are listening, or today, as people are listening, but yesterday, as their people are listening, if we were recording it. But today, as we're recording it, it's tomorrow. Does that make sense? Kind of. Anyway, <laughs> February 19th, 2001, was my very first day at Empire. And it was uh, the Empire Awards 2001. And that's how I will always remember my first day at, at Empire. And it means I can look it up on the internet going, when, the, when, when, when did when I start at Empire? Yeah. I didn't realise that particular day was your very first day. That was the day that we met, Chris. That's Aww. right. I yeah. remember being introduced to you and and then you started following me around as I started interviewing people and I had no idea who you were um, because uh, I didn't entirely catch your name or indeed what you did. <laughs> and even now, 20 years on, you're not entirely certain. I'm not on either percent. count. Was that when the website was in a different building at that it point? It was, yeah. yeah. And we met at the Empire Awards and as I recall, our first meeting, we met and within 10 seconds of meeting, were thrust into an interview with Billy Boyd. I believe we were. Yeah. I believe we were. Yeah. yeah. And the big names just kept on coming. Yeah. We double double teamed him at the awards. We did. We we Golly. We, we double teamed Merry or Pippin. Um he's definitely one of those, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> yes. We'll be talking all about Lord of the Rings later on in the show we will, as well. Yes. But that was that was a fun night. That was a fun night. Um I was absolutely shitting my pants and um which was a bonus. And <laughs> I I'd, f- I'd flown across from Northern Ireland to start my life in the big smoke. Uh, I wasn't meant to officially start for another week, but because the Empire Awards were happening, the, the editor at the time, Emma Cochran, said, come on down and help out at the Empire Awards and come along and, you know, meet the team and get involved and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I went along absolutely, probably Breaking as nervous it. as I've ever been in my life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, but it was a, a fun time just being launched into the maelstrom and going around and they gave me a list of questions to ask people, specific questions to ask people rather than just how are you and, and who are you in some cases. Um, <laughs> who's this bald guy next to me whilst I'm interviewing Billy Boyd? And I had them written down on the piece of paper because I was so nervous. I'm sure I've told this story before. I know I have on Twitter. But I interviewed the League of Gentlemen, all four of them at the same time. And I did interview some stars before. You know, you, you don't, talked you don't, to Daniel Radcliffe's granny, didn't you? You don't, your, yeah, you don't do job. a year and a half at the Banbridge Chronicle without oh. uh, talking to the big names. Uh, you know, having two minutes at a soiree with David Trimble. Poof. Or uh, talking to the manager of Ocean's Colour Scene. Uh, or indeed, as you so correctly mentioned there, Helen, uh, Daniel Radcliffe's granny who uh, lived in Banbridge. Um, so, you know, I was, I, was pretty, I was pretty down with the A-list. But nevertheless, I was really, really nervous. And I was talking to the League of Gentlemen, all four of them. So Mark Gatiss, Reese Shearsmith, Steve Pemberton and Jeremy Dyson. And I uh, dried up. I forgot my questions because I was literally reading the questions. And I went, sorry, guys, it's my first time really nervous. And I had to get the questions out of the Aww. out of my pocket and open up the, the paper to look at it. And it was probably was, who, how are you? What is your next project? It probably was something as, as simple as that. Now, of course, I'd be doing free willy and improv with them all. Ha ha ha. But, um, <laughs> but back then, really nervous. And Mark Gatiss, I'll never forget this uh, he just he just patted my arm and said you're doing really really well Aww, and, and, and you can you. see that as being ultra patronizing or you can see it as being really encouraging uh, and he recognized that a young guy was really really nervous and um, wanted to reassure him so I take it as the latter I think it's I think that's very nice actually well, I think that's what well was done your him. first day like Kellen I forget um, I was had that complicated situation where I came in to cover a premiere in the evening, the, the premiere of Peter Pan. I got to talk to Jason Isaacs. Hello to Jason Isaacs and <laughs> Olivia Williams and people like that. Oh, we could make that our catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was, it, that was exciting. But I literally had to come in and 
and I think meet people the previous Friday and get talked through what I needed to do. And then I came in and I did the premiere and then I started formally the next day or something complicated like that. I also had to get talked through the incredibly difficult database process by Amy. Do you remember that? So we uh, had to, yes. once a month, um, the web monkey, which was my official job title at the time, <laughs> had to input all of the new reviews into the Empire database online. And and so I had to be talked through that because like, I, I really didn't know a CMS from a, you know, CPR. So it was, it was a complicated <laughs> thing to learn. But what is it with us and baptisms by fire? My first yeah. day in Empire was also a premiere where I had to interview famous people while shitting my pants. It seems to be that some, that's something everyone has to do. <laughs> Who says men can't Maybe a Imodium, you know, would be would be the way to go. Mine was the premiere of High Fidelity. And uh, I had to talk to Stephen Frears and a whole bunch of people on the red carpet. And then I oh went to the- Oh my God, that's a baptism the, of fire. I know, it really was quite full on. At the party, I didn't realise that at the party it is not really a done thing to just randomly sidle up to celebrities and start interviewing them without warning. And I collared Samantha Morton and started talking to her. And she looked mortified. And I remember, because I didn't have a dictaphone with me, I was writing notes. I looked down, writing notes. I looked up and she'd literally run away. She'd gone <laughs> in between questions. She just legged it. And fair play to her. I think I would yeah. have done the same thing. I have to say, I mean, so back in the day when we did pre cover premieres and cover red carpets, usually what would happen was quite unglamorous. You'd go and you'd stand in a drafty foyer in Leicester Square. Mm. You'd ask some questions. If you were lucky, and in those days you, you often were, you would get one or two minutes with each, you know, different celebrity, different star of the film. By the time we stopped doing it, there were like 10 of you getting 30 seconds with a celebrity and it just yeah. kind of wasn't worth it anymore. But sometimes we did get invited to see the film and the party. And I have to say my very first one, that Peter Pan premiere, I got to see the film and did then was you? invited to the after party. And because the film was pr um, produced by um, Mohammed Al-Fayed, Harrods catered the after party. So I do remember standing wow. next to a gigantic chocolate fountain, marveling at it next to Vanessa Redgrave. And we, we both exchanged a sort of, oh my goodness, isn't this wonderful kind of a moment. So that was really nice. That's, That's amazing. lovely. I was at that same after party. Were you? Uh, I, I don't go to many premieres. I don't get invited despite being awesome. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but that was one of the few I've, I've ever been invited to. Uh, and yeah, I went to the after party and I remember being starstruck as Pink Floyd's Dave Gilmore uh, probably looked at the same fountain, actually. We probably, probably gazed right? on it. Uh, yeah, that would, that would have been the first time you and I were in the same room, Helen. Wow, we didn't even know it. Unbeknownst to us. I always think it's quite funny when we used to do premieres, the kind of random people you would end up interviewing on the carpets, because you'd get the core cast and you get the randoms who turned up as well. But sometimes you got like delightful, like I, I interviewed Mick Jagger at one of these things, just randomly, because he was a guest at the premiere. I don't remember. Actually, do you know what? I don't think it was Randy. I think it was Enigma and he was a producer. So <laughs> that wasn't he was there. <laughs> so you thinking about it, it wasn't as random as I thought. <laughs> but yeah, if you applied the same rigor that you applied to spelling Punxsutawney, I'm surprised, yeah, it probably did go like this. Mick Jagger what are you doing here? I'm the producer of the film! And you go, oh, okay, yeah, I knew that, obviously. Oh. If memory serves, it was his Enigma machine that they used in uh. the film, that he has an Enigma machine, and they used that in the film as well. I, I wow. do think, like, it used to be a thing when, because you would obviously get a list of which cast and crew were expected to attend, yes, so you could prepare yes, questions right. for those. But this was pre-Google and pre-smart, or pre-smartphone Google, at least. Yeah. And so... You had to have your questions ready in advance. And if something yeah. did turn up on the carpet, there'd be that frantic moment of like talking to the person next to you going, she's in something, isn't she? She's coming. She's got something coming up. What is it? Is there something I should know? Shit. It's yes. Madonna. Oh my God. That it was, was amazing. Yeah, stressful. 
Uh, Chris and Chris and I, I remember you and I, Christopher, we did the premiere of, I think, the first... Because you didn't do many premieres, because you were like, I'm not fucking doing this shit, this is a mugs game. But we mm. did uh, the first Spider-Man film. Do you remember that? In Leicester Square? And oh, we've been Spider-Man 2. I, was I, Spider-Man 2? I, I remember that, because I did one premiere with you, and it was fucking pissing with rain, and there was like a river of water yeah. running over our feet as we were mm-hmm. waiting. I did Spider-Man 2, because I, w- I wanted to beat Sam Raimi. Yes, yes, so. that was it. I did... Um, the Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone premiere, I had to be in place in Leicester Square, I think, seven hours before the premiere <sighs> began. I, that was just insanity. Why? I do not, to this day, understand why, but we had to be in place in the morning and it wasn't until the evening. Oh, my God. All right, well, next time we have Dan Reckliff on the podcast, you can call him all sorts of names. Axio uh, Talent. Listen. Oh, oh wait, no, you, oh, you mean that the talent I just say, that was not. I, thought, I wasn't trying to summon talent, like <laughs> comment on his acting. It was more, bring the talent to me so I can interview them at the right. premiere. Okay, okay. Yes. Okay, that okay. was the... Wow. Nicely, yeah. nicely almost that false impression. Okay. okay. I have to say, I, I, I walked the carpet for the final Harry Potter film. A few of us went to Did just as know? guests to that, and there were little kids with with big signs saying like Asio, you know, Tom Felton or Asio Jason Isaacs and stuff like this. Draco, I guess, probably. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. Anyway, it was cool. What a wonderful trip down memory lane this has been. <sighs> yeah, uh, however, took longer, I would have warrant, than the three-fast structure, but sure. <laughs> uh, it, it, it did, it did, worryingly so, because we still have a lot to get through. Um, <sighs> so, and not a lot of time in which to get through it. So, uh, what we're going to do in hours, we're going to have our very first guest. At least I hope this has happened, because I, <laughs> I don't know whether it's happened, but I, I am assured it has happened. And it is an interview with Hugh Bonifil, uh returning to the podcast. He is uh, fantastic, of course. You'll have seen him in Downton Abbey. You'll have seen a specific part of him as James said in <laughs> De Vinci's Demons, Demons. <laughs> and and you'll have seen him be warm and a funkular as Mr. Brown in the Paddington movies and uh, now he is starring in the Sky Cinema original movie To Olivia in which he plays Roald Dahl coming up with all sorts of incredible creatures and creations ah oh, wonderful stuff uh, and so this uh, I believe happened yesterday Amon Warman um, talked to him I hope <laughs> so <laughs> here it is he probably would have mentioned it if it went wrong you know I think so. I think so. So, um, at some point, I should get the files. Here it is. <laughs> Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by Mr. Hugh Bonneville. How are you, Hugh? Hey, good, Eamon. I'm very well. Nice to, <laughs> nice to be talking to you. Good to be talking with you, sir. First and foremost, congrats on the vaccine. I see you got your vaccine the other day. Uh, how did that go? <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I, I was aware that I'd had a bit of a sore arm the next day, but that was it. Um, it's interesting. Some people get really floored by it and have symptoms for, you know, a day or more. But uh, uh, for whatever reason, I just, uh, you know, I feels like it felt like somebody had thumped me on the arm, but uh, it, it soon went away. But um, no, I feel very fortunate that I'm, you know, on the way. And, um, you know, this all came about because I'm part of a vaccination team in uh, in uh, my local town and um, all the all the all the uh, volunteers there. Um, we're offered the vaccine as they are indeed around the country. So, um, you know, it feels like we're all taking part in something that's uh, a, a finally a bit of a positive message. Absolutely. And secondly, congrats on your new film to Olivia, which is uh, why we're here to talk uh, today. You, of course, play Vol Dole in that film. Do you remember what your first Vol Dole book was? Gosh, I, I must have read, uh, you know, one of the famous ones when I was little, but I really remember particularly when I was a teenager reading some of his short stories which uh, I thought, wow, this is an interesting sort of twisted imagination, um, and uh, I like it. And uh, then, later, then after that, there there became there was a TV show in the uh, in the seventies 
um, and possibly into the 80s, Tales of the Unexpected, which again were sort of short stories that took on a macabre twist. And uh, this was Roald Dahl's obviously great skill, both in, you know with uh, with young readers and with older readers, was to go into the the darker recesses of the mind and uh, uh, and uh, entertain people with uh, unexpected uh, treasures and and uh, twists and turns. Absolutely. Speaking of unexpected, I didn't know too much about uh, this side of Eldon before watching this film. Uh, what's the most surprising thing you found out about him in preparing to play him? Well, to be really honest, everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'd only I'd not known anything about him apart from I knew he was a yeah, slightly, uh, you know, slightly didn't take any prisoners in interviews and uh, was quite sort of straight down the line and. Um, uh, clearly a very bright man, well-read man, but I had no idea about his family hinterland uh, or indeed much about his own background at all. So that really was a, a, a journey of discovery, um, first of all with the script. And then after that, when I started to read around a bit and uh, read the book on which the film is based and uh, and read other interviews, et cetera, and, and realised that there's a really very complex man and a complex marriage and uh, this marriage that had to navigate this appalling tragedy. If there was... Any one scene you could ask Vold Dahl about, ask him, ask him if, if you got this particular thing right. Is there any particular scene that sticks out to you? Well, there's a scene in the middle of the film when I should explain for, for those who haven't seen it, you know, the the, the, the Ruled and his his wife, the actress Patricia Neal, um, this is set in the 1960s, they go through this unimaginable tragedy of, of losing their child and uh, having to navigate that grief. And at one point, she uh, talks about uh, going, maybe going back to work. She's been offered a film in Hollywood. And for all sorts of complex reasons, Ruled is very resistant to it, partly selfish because his own career isn't, isn't perhaps uh, not going the way he wanted, uh, because uh, you know, they're going through this journey of grief and that he's not in a place that she is. Uh, he's very much isolated and, uh, and he becomes really quite um, resistant to her going in front of the director who's come over to woo her to go to Hollywood. And he embarrasses uh, uh, the director. He tries to he tries to belittle the offer of the job that she's got. Uh, he tries to belittle uh, Patricia. She, in turn, fights back and um, and actually you know, puts ruled in his place, as, as, is, as is only correct. Yeah. I would like to I would love to have. Uh, been in that because of course that scene is fictionalized but I would like to know how much of that tone uh, was reflective of their marriage because it was a very complex marriage and you know when you're going through a lot of pain you do say horrible things to people you love and um, uh, and you lash out at those you care for, care for most and I'd like to know that we were in the right ballpark that we weren't doing anything you know I, I know we weren't doing anything disrespectful but but I'd I'd like to I'd love to have seen what, what he could really be like because I I heard that we were quite we were quite generous towards him that he could be really quite vicious and um uh and that you know she clearly was a, a woman of great patience and great fortitude and she navigated she she helped navigate uh, this family through this appalling time and uh, I think without her ruled really would have fallen apart so um it's a, it's a fascinating journey a painful one but um it's a it's an interesting story particularly at the, the times we're in when we're all experiencing great sense of frustration and trauma and pain and uh, to see this couple go through it is um, you know, and come out the other side. You know, there is a positive message there. Yeah, no, you you, you mentioned it there. Um, you know, Roald and his wife, they have to navigate a horrible tragedy in this film. And uh, I've heard that the most emotional scene where your character, Roald Dolly, breaks down in the car, I've heard that that was Keely Hall's, your co-star. I've heard that that was her first day 
Uh, so, so that is true. How long do you guys have to chat before filming that? Well, well, not a lot. We'd uh, she, you know, as as we all know, she is the busiest actress on the planet. So for her to squeeze in our, you know, little film in the middle of her incredible schedule was incredibly, you know, was really generous of her. And uh, uh, you know, we we had a little bit of rehearsal time, uh, few, you know, with the children and trying to you know form our little family unit, which was invaluable. But uh, yeah, on the first day of on her first day, that she had to get in a car with uh, with a bloke who was just sort of miles away, you know, in terms of uh, emotional connection. <laughs> And um, you know we had to uh, try and you know get get that scene down where uh, rule pretty much collapses. Um, so that wasn't a, you know it wasn't a, it wasn't an easy introduction for her. But she you know we're just actors getting on with the job. So uh, we soon uh, we soon found a rhythm to work together. We then of course had to re- reshoot the scene three weeks later for various technical reasons. But um, but uh, that was a, yeah that was her baptism. Baptism by fire. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the more surprising things for me watching this film was learning that James and the Giant Peach had been a flop at first. And I find it really interesting that this film, uh, when you think of Roald Dahl, you don't necessarily think of somebody who's suffering from imposter syndrome. Uh, but the film actually shows that a little bit. And I think that's something that's true of all creatives. If that's true for you, how do you manage that? How do you do that? It was it was very interesting um, because uh, yeah the, the 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 passage of time that this film covers really was when Patricia his wife was a a celebrated Broadway actress and uh, in much demand in in Hollywood and uh, ruled who had been a you know a relatively successful writer uh, he'd had James and the Giant Peach published in America but it hadn't found a home in the UK he was known to be difficult with editors and. Um, you know, he was his own man and um, perhaps didn't listen to advice sometimes. And so you can feel this sort of tension in the relationship that she's actually, you know, her star is in the ascendant and his is sort of static. And um, that sense of I'm not good enough, um, as he's in the middle of writing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, is, is sort of palpable and understandable. And this, uh, and then if you add into the mix this uh appalling tragedy of, of, of losing their daughter. How can you be creative when that sort of, you know, uh, grief is upon you? And that's really one of the themes of the film of, of how they navigate that. Um, and uh, the sense of, I'm, you know, I'm not worth it. You know, I've, I've, how can I possibly be worth anything after, after I've lost, uh, after we've lost um, the jewel in our, in our, in our, in our life. Um, but they do. And I think that's one of the, again, the sort of the positive aspects of the, of the story is, that despite this ebbing and flowing of pain and grief and, and the, as I say, the anger that you can express or the disbelief or the denial and all these, these, this sort of quagmire and, and whirlpool of emotions that accompany grief and the journey through it, they do actually both of them, both of them find a creative energy through it. Eventually he does in our version. I mean, we've Constantine at time and played around with the timeline a bit, but to make the point that out of this can come a creative positive. And uh, for, for her, it's going back to work in the movies and she does, you know, this film HUD with Paul Newman, brilliantly played by uh, Sam Hewen. And in his case, you know, finally the publication um, of, uh, of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which of course changed everything and, and catapulted him into the into the front rank. Um, so yes, you're, you're catching someone at the time where they're doubting their abilities um, and with, with, you know, with uh, on the evidence of it, all good reason, you know, not great sales on this particular book and this, you know, tr- tr- tragic loss. Um, one of the things I love about uh, Roald and Patricia's relationship is that whenever Roald is finished with uh, a, a script or, or book, in this case, uh, hers is the first and most important opinion uh, to her. She's the first person that he goes to. 
for you, when you're reading scripts, what's, whose opinion do you value the most in terms of should I do this, have a read? What, what do you think? Well, over the years, it's been, yeah, it's probably been my wife who is, um, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, she's, you know, she's a genuine sort of um, member of the audience. I mean, she's got no, you know, vested interest other than keeping me going. Um, uh, and so she she reads, it, she would re- read a project or I describe a project and uh, she would have a very good instinct as to whether that's, uh, you know, a, a goer or not. I remember once <laughs> I was uh, sent a script from a film called Iris, which was about Iris Murdoch, um, which in the end it was uh, Jim Broadbent and I played Iris's husband, John Bailey, in uh, in two different timelines. And, and uh, Judy Dench and Kate Winslet um, played, played Iris. And um, I remember reading the first page and uh, then it says cut to, um, you know, 40 years later and we meet, um, you know, Judy Dench and Jim Borman. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm not doing that. I'm only in the first scene. That's ridiculous. I'm, you know, I'm not going to read any more. And my wife and I said, so I was on the verge of phoning my agent and my wife picked it up and flicked through it and said, no, you idiot. It cuts back and forth throughout the story. So don't be so stupid. And uh, so that was a that was a good lesson in always read the full script before you decide anything. <laughs> I wanted to quickly ask about uh, Jingle Jangle, which is a film which I really loved uh, and I really enjoyed your performance in it. I imagine once they told you told you that you'd get to wear epic sideburns and a mustache, that was it for you. You were all in. Am I, am I correct? Pretty much. You know, I had no idea what I was walking into. They, you know, I'd got this message saying... Uh, uh, David e. Talbot would uh, love you to just to play this cameo in this project. And I looked at the script and I thought, this is gorgeous and sweet. And I just had it down in my head as this little sort of you know film that happened to be shooting in England. And I had a day or two you know available. So I thought, why not? You know, it'd be fun. I had no idea the scale of it or its tone or its look or its sheen or its music. I had none of that in my head. So I walked into the, uh, for a costume fitting and they said, and A, the costume department was like a vast warehouse. And then they said, do you want to pop down to the set and then see David? And, and so I went, yeah, I had no idea it was the scale it was or the, and the, and the, uh, you know, this, 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 the, well, just the, the energy on set, David's energy, and you're, I, I'm getting the vibe that you went on set or you, you know the show particularly? Unfortunately, I did not go on set, but I would have loved to because you're completely right. The costuming is incredible. Uh, yeah. d- d- did you get to keep any, anything from set? Or anything? <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. And you know, I'm only in two tiny little beats of the story, but uh, <laughs> I had these beautiful, beautiful costumes made, and um, and uh, had a, you know a lot of conversations with the with the designer about you know the look and the tone and all that. And I said, yeah, how are we gonna how are we gonna show this off the best? Because I've got a cloak on, and it, and so I made a damn point of taking my cloak off so you could see the whole thing, even though I was in the only in the scene for like 45 seconds. Um, but no, I was genuinely impressed by that. I was impressed by you know david had taken he said it had taken 20 years to get this project together it's, it's a story that he'd had in his head and uh, he'd been developing for so long and netflix took the punt on him and gosh the you know you could see the money on the screen i mean god quite apart from you know, having uh, john legend involved and then the whole musical team and um uh, and the design team and the fantastic choreography um, and just this sheer sort of joy and wonder. And obviously, let's say the most diverse cast you've ever seen on a, in a movie made in Britain. Um, uh, that was just glorious. Um, and uh, and yet it's, it's this wonderful Victoriana sort of sensibility, this steampunky Victoriana sensibility to it was uh, was a joy. So I'm very, very proud to have been, you know, played my minuscule part in that. <laughs> Yeah, nah, it's a, it's a great film. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, mm. are, you in, are you in general a person who keeps odd things from sets here and there? And if so, what, what's your favorite piece of memorabilia that you have? 
Uh, I've liberated a couple of things, uh, you mm -hmm. know, because obviously one doesn't want to go to waste on set. I tried to get the uh, pencil sharpener from the Roald Dahl film because I thought that was an I iconic piece. But unfortunately, I think it got lost in the move. But uh, no. I did buy, I did buy in a, uh, I did get a, 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 an old fashioned electric pencil sharpener just to uh, sharpen the, my um, the, the pencils in the same way that Roald Dahl did. Um, I think I've, I've got to, the, the designer of, of Downton Abbey very sweetly at the end of the whole show gave me the telegram that Lord Grantham read out announcing the, the beginning of World War One. That was an iconic moment in the first season. But um, I do like to, you know, occasionally I, I pinch something, but I don't want to end up getting sued. So I'm quite cautious. <laughs> It's okay. You, you could tell me after after we're done. That's fine. <laughs> between, between me and you, between, okay, between me. And you. Um, I wanted to also ask about Paddington Three. I'm very excited for the third film in the trilogy. What's the latest from you? Have you have you have you heard anything about where they're at with the script or anything like that? Well, it sounds like you're you're probably more more on it than I am. But um, <laughs> what I can say is I ran into David Heyman a while ago. Now, obviously, you know, uh, pre lockdowns of various forms and. Uh, I said, you know, what are the chances? And he said, well, we are, you know, we're going, we're working on on a, on a Paddington three. But and this was a very heartening thing to hear from a producer, uh, or shows the caliber of this producer. He said, we're only going to make it when the script is absolutely right. Um, he said because the first two were so beloved and so successful, we owe it to Michael Bond, we owe it to Paddington, and we owe it to our audience to get it right. There's no point just cashing in and doing a, a third one because we can. So I admired that. Um, but so I, I, you know, fingers crossed. It would be so lovely because those first two really did work. And um, if we can capture the right tone and spirit of of the stories and get the bear out of his trailer, that would be uh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> we are evangelical about the first two films on the Empire podcast so we are very excited I saw actually that you um, retweeted a tweet that Hugh Grant uh, sent a few weeks ago about Elizabeth Hurley potentially being the villain and um, I would be very here for that I'm just saying <laughs> I think we'd all be up for that that would be hilarious <laughs> goodness me I, yes I mean who knows but uh, uh, let's get the script first yeah. also more train stunts for you of course I'm sure that you've requested that already Absolutely. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm now so flexible that uh, you know, doing the splits is, uh, you know, what what next? I can do flick flacks across the, uh, you know, across the train roofs. Who knows? Maybe we'll be. Maybe Paddington will go to space. And we'll, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> What's next? Anything's possible. Are you more recognised for Paddington or Downton Abbey at this stage? It varies. Obviously, it depends on the age group, but. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, it's probably 50-50, actually, which I'm, you know, very. I feel very, very blessed to have been in two, uh, two brands, two franchises, two films that uh, have, have struck a chord, or two projects that uh, people of different ages from all around the world seem to love. So I feel very, very lucky indeed. I could not let you go without asking the most important question because I was having a look at your Twitter and I noticed that you were playing FIFA 21 and you had some lag issues. So first of all, did you cut off your internet lag issues? And second of all, are you more of a career mode guy or are you more of an online news guy? I, I, I need to know you. <laughs> I'm going to let you into a secret. It was my son, actually. <laughs> so I was asking on behalf of my son. <laughs> he was getting horrible lag issues. It turned out to be uh, an update issue, I think, with FIFA 21. But I've tried playing. I've got, I have got opposable thumbs, but they don't seem to oppose at the same time. So I'm rubbish on games. I sit there uh, and watch my son playing and... Um, uh, I'm full of admiration, but I'm, um, you know, I'm afraid I'm not in the league. <laughs> okay, so that was Hugh Bonneville. What a fantastic interview, guys. I think you can all agree. Uh, now it is time to tackle the listener's question this week, which I have actually lost the name of the person who has sent it in. So let's hope that I have got it on my Twitter profile. Uh, but essentially, it is a 
uh, version of a question that I lost a few weeks ago. Uh, so if you remember, we were going to do a question and then I had lost it. Ah, here we are. And this person, Waltham, at Waltham underscore bear on Twitter, sent in this question, which jogged my memory. Uh, but it turns out he's not the person who sent in the original question. So if you are listening to this and you go, oh, that's my question, then do let me know and I can correct an injustice. And speaking of injustices, Waltham underscore bear says, hey, hey. How are you? With Trump getting away with it again, mm, what's the worst movie injustices where the bad guy gets away with it? The one that really made you shake your fist in a holy British way. Just to lay groundwork, I would like to say that Infinity War is disqualified because, as we all know, Thanos was the hero and not the villain, and therefore <gasps> oh, does not qualify for this question. Oh, also, it, it, you know, I feel like that's part of a set with uh, with the second one. So I feel like middle middle films in a trilogy or first films in a duad sh- dyad should not really count here. That that doesn't seem right, you know. So Empire Strikes Back, I, I don't think quite fits this bill because the bad guy isn't going to get away with it. That's just a temporary reprieve, if you will. But what if everyone had just like fallen over and died at the end of that film? Yeah, but they yeah. didn't though. You know, but if that, you know, if, 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 say, for example, George Lucas had fallen off a cliff. Well, I mean, like, I think Fox probably would have, you know, kept it going. But, but no, I, I just, like, I just feel like that makes it far too easy, doesn't it? Boring. Yeah. Yeah. Boring. 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 <laughs> anyway, you guys talk about yourselves while I come up with some new answers. <laughs> well, but whoa, 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 so two, two seconds, two seconds. I should absolutely say that by the very nature of this question, Spoilers alert. We're going to spoil the shit out of a whole bunch of movies for the next 10 to 15 minutes. So uh, I think Infinity War and Empire Strikes Back, they're fairly famous endings, but we're going to be talking about some obscure movies or hopefully some obscure I mean, movies. You think a lot of us, Chris. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> I don't know what I'm expecting. But Helen, in her research into Women vs. Hollywood, for example, will have come across a whole bunch of ye olde yeah. films made before 1975, the sort of films that James doesn't like to watch. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you watched Casablanca that one time. That's true. That, I did watch that one film. Um, yes. Uh, no, this is this is good that you've, you've put this warning in because, you know, so yeah. if anyone is worried about me ruining Arlington Road, then turn yeah. off the podcast now. Skip, <laughs> skip, skip it now, folks. Skip it or he will tell you that Jeff Bridges dies at the end of Arlington Road <laughs> and he is lured and conned into bringing a bomb into the FBI headquarters by Tim Robbins and then the bomb blows up and it makes it look like Jeff Bridges is the bomber. And Tim Robbins no. at the end, he's the, he's standing there with his evil wife um, John Either. Cusack and it's just uh, and you're going mm. oh no this is terrible this is absolutely terrible uh, but but that's an example of the sort of movie you're going to be spoiling so if you don't <laughs> like that then skip the next 10 to 15 minutes but mm. yeah did you know that the road next to the road next to our offices in Camden is called Arlington Road that's right I saw oh. Jeff Bridges driving down it just the other day <laughs> which is utterly untrue because I've not been there in like a year but still <laughs> <laughs> Also, surely it'd be Tim Robbins. Yeah, uh, well, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's well, a good one. So one that, one that immediately leapt out to me was No Country for Old Men, because oh, yeah. not only does the bad guy get away with it, but it's it's just like offhand, casually done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no big deal, but Josh Brolin dies. And you're kind of rooting for Josh Brolin the whole way through. But no, he's just killed off screen and there it is. Oh, well, bye. And not even by the bad guy. Yeah. Just in a, in a random, random throwdown. Um, you could argue there's a little bit of a, a moral equalization going on there uh, towards the end of the film, though. You could Maybe. argue that, you know, Shigeru gets into the car accident and, you know, he's limping away. And for the first time, he seemed to be frail and seemed to be human. He absolutely does get away with it. The big question is, mm. for that movie, do you think he does kill Kenny McDonald's character? 
Yes. I think this. I think your answer to yeah. this says an awful lot about your character. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so the fact that you both said yes immediately <laughs> uh, makes me worry about you both. Because the whole film is incredibly bleak and nihilistic. Yeah. So I think to have a happy ending would just be fucking weird. Yeah, that's not that our bleakness. It's, it's not a that's... happy ending. That's not a happy ending. It's just you know, just means that maybe one time, one time in this movie, the that fate came down and no, but and, look, and this someone. is a Cormac McCarthy novel. Like mm-hmm. there are no yeah, there are there's no, no fate. There's, there's no, no redemption there. There's no redemption. <laughs> the road has an uplifting ish last. Oh yes, it has a real. <laughs> Feel good uplifting in the road. These are <laughs> wow. You know, there's, you know, it's not all. It's not all babies being roasted on spits. It's mostly, mostly babies, babies being roasted <laughs> on spits. Oh my god. Okay, well, you know, I I choose to read optimism, and I think that you know, he, even if he shoots her, he doesn't kill her. He just shoots her in the in the knee. Just wings her. Yeah, wow. just wings her. Tis but a scratch, a mere flesh wound. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's a cracking one. That yeah. is a cracking one. Jimbo, what have you got? The first, uh, the the most obvious and first place one is Kaiser Schurze. Kaiser uh, Schurze. Yeah. Kaiser Schurze. Who very much gets away with it in more ways than one. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's the, that. that. But the, I mean, you kind of, that's that's the the... The sort of crowning achievement of that film is that he gets away. You, mm. mean, you don't feel like in, in No Country for Old Men, you feel a bit dirty, like you need a shower and you feel quite upset that he's got away with it. Like no one's upset that Kaiser Soze gets away with it. There's something great about the fact that he has tricked Kulian all the way through the film. And uh, I think you're with him at that point. So, so yeah, I don't think it leaves a bad taste in the mouth. So it's fine. <laughs> yay. Yay, okay. yay for Kaiser Soze. I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> Again, it says a lot about your character, how quickly <laughs> you can side with... Well, but <laughs> while we're on the subject of him, um, John Doe also kind of gets away with it. Sure, he gets shot in the face, but that's his plan. So he does get away with it. Yeah, that's really s- twisted, isn't it? I mean, that's a fucking bleak ending. <sighs> yeah. yeah, I'm not sure I'll ever get over that one. That was What's really upsetting. What's in the box? Oh, and it's a vagina-scented candle. <laughs> <laughs> What's in the bugs? What's in the bugs? <laughs> so let me see. Let me see. Let me see. We were talking about this before we started recording. Because I was trying to... I was going to drop a whole bunch of film noir. Because film noir tends to... Not always, obviously. But, you know, there tends to be an element in film noir of the, the hero running afoul of... You know, unscrupulous bad guys, and and a femme fatale or two, mm. and usually dying, uh, lonely, unloved, bleeding out on the floor of some motel room. But um, as Helen, as you were pointing out, you know, because of things like the the Hayes Code and whatnot, yeah. um, there was a a sort of moral imperative imposed upon movies for a long, long time, a long, yeah. long time, as we as we discussed on our three-hour interview that uh, I did with Quentin Tarantino and, and Edgar Wright, where Quentin Tarantino was bemoaning the fact that a lot of great British crime films of the 40s, 50s, and 60s all had to kind of make sure that the, the, the baddies got their comeuppance in some way, even if it felt utterly, completely, and, and, and you know, 100% contrived at the end. And it's the same thing with a lot of you know, American movies, you know, mm. of, of noir films, even things like, you know, Out of the Past or Build My Gallows High, which is, you know, which in which things do not end well for the hero. Um, Robert Mitchum in that case, or things like, you know, Jimmy Cagney going down in flames in White Heat or, you know, making up a, a, an Angels with Dirty Faces where he goes to the, the, the electric chair, but he 
screams and shouts and hollers all the way, even though it's just a show, just so he can show the kids who look up to him as some sort of twisted role model that, you know, this is how it ends. You go out like a you know lily-livered, yellow-bellied coward um, rather than like a real man. So there was always this sort of moral imperative imposed on a lot of movies for a lot of lot of for for many 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 years i think things really began to shift post-war um around about the 50s things started getting a little bit darker 60s darker still and the 70s dark as fuck in the in the wake of (laughs) uh, you know as vietnam was going on Mm. and the 70s if you were if you found a movie in the 1970s where the hero wins at the end that's actually rarer than where (laughs) the hero gets his comeuppance and the bad guy corporation wins a la the parallax view yeah it, the, it it did begin to change in the sort of mid forties because I think when you had people exposed to like the, the images that were coming out of World War Two, it became a bit ridiculous to have such narrow limits on Hollywood. And you got films like Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice, where they technically met the standards of the censors mm-hmm. and technically the bad guy did get his at the end. But like at the very last minute, so it's like mm-hmm. ninety minutes of the bad guy getting away with it, and one minute of the police going, "Well, we got him," and and it kind of it it, it undermined the spirit, if not the reality of the of the of the law. So I think that that began to change things because just people clearly wanted more, and it kind of just became obvious. So, mm. but yeah, so some of those noirs are really twisted out of all recognition. I actually read mm. the book of In a Lonely Place recently, and it's fucking incredible. I cannot stress you enough. You should read In a Lonely Place. It's amazing. Um, but it's it's literally a book about a serial killer. And they made it into a book about a guy with a bad temper. Or hmm. into a film about, about a guy with a bad temper. And it just kind of... It's oh, it's such a shame. It's still a very good film, but it's nowhere near as nasty as the book is. Anyway, that's mm. possibly slightly off base for the question. Let's but ruin just, some more films. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. That, yeah. And so, for example, in the seventies, right? So at the at the end of the sixties, I think, and you know, I'm, there are probably loads of examples of of of, of unhappy endings in the fifties and sixties. But uh, for me, the seventies is when it really, really began to turn when Hollywood embraced unhappiness. Um, you know, and not even Hollywood. Uh, if you want to look at, for example, uh, a classic British crime film, Get Carter, mm-hmm. which ends with his hero lying dead on a beach with a hole in his head, like a piss hole in the snow. Long Good Friday. Long Good Friday. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's at the tail end of the 70s as well. So the 70s are bookended by these two really bleak movies in which um, Michael Caine and Bob Hoskins, who were real life, real life mates, uh, didn't get away with it. But in between that, you have all sorts of films like The Parallax View, like I suggested, you know, which is about a journalist investigating this massive corporation that pulls all sorts of strings and is absolutely one for the conspiracy theorists and, and QAnon truth or dickheads uh, to, to embrace these days. But it's an incredible, incredible film, Alan J. Pecula. Uh, movie, but things were beginning to spiral already at the end of the seventies, at the end of the sixties, because you have things like Wild Bunch, you know, where they're mm-hmm. making a, a fatalistic last stand. But then in the seventies as well, you have horror films begin to end bleakly. Um, the Omen. I mean, maybe this falls into Helen's. You know, we can't we we can rule out things that happen in trilogies because Damien Thorne ultimately gets his comeuppance at the end of Omen three. But at the end of the but Omen, it wasn't planned. Which wasn't meant to have a no, sequel. Wasn't yeah. planned. Yeah. He wins. The, uh, the, the Antichrist wins. He doesn't know he wins. He's a five-year-old kid. But all the forces around him, the machinations of the of, of the devil's army, make sure that you know it, it doesn't end well. Um, the conversation, Coppola's movie that he made in between 
uh, Godfather and Godfather 2 ends bleakly. It doesn't end with the, the death of the hero, but it ends with him absolutely being um, destroyed emotionally and spiritually. Um, and there are tons and tons of examples like that in the 1970s. Mm. It feels a little bit less common in the 80s. Like you have, I guess, technically the thing. It kind of feels like a Pyrrhic victory rather than a, a win for the thing in a weird way. And Nightmare on Elm Street, but then in horror it became quite prevalent yeah, there, yeah. didn't it? Okay, like to have a sort of a twist victory for the villain at the end of horror almost became, you know, the well, way to go. Because by that point they realised mm. they could sequelize them. So they wanted Indeed. to keep the bad guy alive. <laughs> Indeed. Also, you um, want to leave people going out in a last big scare as well, don't mm. you? Sometimes, yes, which definitely. Which Nightmare on Elm Street does, and the Evil Dead does. Um, Basic instinct, she gets away with it, doesn't she? Or does she, etc., etc. Et but yes, cetera, yes, yeah. she does. Yes, because who keeps an does. ice pick by their bed? I'm just saying. What, you don't keep an ice pick? But is that unusual? Wow. I don't. Wow, okay, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, and then, but then there's, there's, you know, there's, there are so many kind of random ones. Like, do you remember? Uh, I always really like the ending of Fallen, which is a film I'm pretty certain only oh, yeah. five people mm -hmm. saw, and Denzel Washington was one of them. Uh, but when obviously Azazel <laughs> wins at the end of that, time is indeed on his side. Yes, Whoa. indeed. Uh, the Wicker Man. Yes. Yes. Rosemary's Baby. Oh man, that one, that one still messes me up. Yeah. <laughs> Silence of the Lambs. Lecter gets away with it, even if Buffalo Bill doesn't. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I He's guess having an old friend speaking. over for dinner. Indeed. Technically speaking, uh, there's a film I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast before, but there's a 1970s horror film called Race with the Devil, which stars Peter Fonda and uh, Warren Oates and Loretta Swit, and it's about a group of you know holiday and friends who accidentally stumble upon some Satanists. Um, committing murder in a ritualistic ceremony and they get they get chased across the country and the end of that movie is really really bleak uh where you think they've got away with it. a little bit wicker manny and that you think they've got away with it and then all of a sudden they're they're out marshaled and outmatched by the satanic forces um uh so that's one to check out folks although you know i've just ruined the ending but there's loads and loads of horror films mm -hmm. as well but uh, uh i've just been reminded as well of uh an ending i absolutely love which is primal fear have you seen Primal Fear? Oh, yes. Yes, that is so good. That is so, so good. good. There yeah. is no Aaron. <gasps> <gasps> yeah. That was, that yeah, was really, that's, really clever. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. It's the kind of film that kind of really only works the first time you watch it, but it is it is so good. It's still so I good. And that's great yeah. you helped it as well, Jimbo, because that's mm. why I, I, you put me in mind of it, because he directed mm. Fallen and he directed Primal Fear. Yeah. And Fallen and Primal Fear are really, really great. But yeah. the way that uh, Primal Fear lit uh, Ed Norton, sorry, Edward Norton, sorry, Edward Norton word. Um, he turns on a dime in that last confrontation with, yeah. with, um, with Richard, Richard Gere. Gere. Yeah. yeah. It's a really, hell of a really performance. good. I think, I think it's a film that suffers somewhat from having uh, a really forgettable title that what doesn't does? really say anything about. Primal Fear. <laughs> What's Primal Fear? It doesn't really say anything about the content of the film. It does feel a bit you know? like 90s thriller generator machine yeah, on exactly. the internet. Yeah, exactly. Basic instinct, fatal attraction, Primal, primal Fear. fear. Like, yeah, exactly that. Um, exactly yeah, that. really good I, film. I, I always think like the, the when, when these work best, it's when the bad guy wins, but you don't feel grim at the end of it. Like I really like the ending of Alien Covenant, which is one of the only things I like about Alien Covenant. super but grim, still, though. But that's really bleak, but you don't feel... It is grim, but you don't feel frustrated by the end of it. There's something quite... Again, poetic about it. I think this is a Rorschach test and you're failing miserably. I, I, <laughs> I felt really frustrated by the, by the end. It's horrible. It's really horrible. Really no, it's horrible. really, it's it's really nasty, but I think it fits the tone of the film quite well. But, but it's, it's, it, I think it's the thing that 
I always find really upsetting in films, and we'll probably discuss this a bit when we do the reviews this week, uh, that when you're in somebody else's power entirely, that's yes. what's so freaking yeah, scary about the Alien Covenant. Yeah. It's, it's, it's most of what ha- whatever happened oh. to Baby Jane. We're going to talk about one of the films this week, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say it, it crops up in I Care A Lot. Yeah. It, it's, it's a really, really terrifying thing. But it's why films like torture films and films with sexual assaults, why they're all so upsetting is because mm. the abuse of power differentials, it's a dynamic that kind of plays to some kind of primal feeling in you. It's, a uh, primal yeah. fear, if you will. A primal fear, if you will, yes. <laughs> oh, and one last one before we, we head on mm. is... Um, uh, 1988 movie is called Die Hard. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, <laughs> it's about a guy cop called John McClane who uh, finds himself caught up in this robbery of this building in LA. And the bad guy, Hans Gruber, gets away with it. He he tries to get $640 million in bearer bonds Sorry, and he, he gets the money and at the end of the movie, you see him sitting on a beach earning 20%. Earning 20%. Yes, that, that's that exactly what, how it is. That's, that's yeah. that how that goes? That's oh, I guess I need to watch that movie again. Yeah. Got up and walked away when he fell However many, wow. just thirty yeah, crores. He, did. he, did. he, he just got really up and walked did. away. That'd be an amazing shot. If you just, if you just, if you just saw him land on his feet, dust he used them down. as a parachute, didn't he? Yes, <laughs> he was wearing culottes. Oh, I, I watched one last night. Kind of Point Break. Point I firmly break. believe that Bodhi surfed the fifty-year storm. Do you now? No, I don't at all. No. I think he died. But the point is, it, he 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 won. He he left on his own terms. He did. Mm. That's true. He did leave on his own turn. Mm. And he was and planning Keanu to do it regardless of what happened. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, he isn't coming back. Oh, oh such a good film. Such I good love film. that so much. Also, also Watchmen as well, because that's yeah. Ozymandias' whole plan plays out as we saw in the Watchmen TV series. Mm. All right. Okay. So if you want to have your question read out on the Emperor Podcast, you can get in touch with us via one method, one method only at the moment, which is to get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can slide into my DMs. Uh, or you can reply to me with any tweet as Waltham underscore Bear, I believe was the name, did, uh, much to his cost. Uh, or you can just wait for me to do a panic shout out uh, every now and again, and then just reply with a question. And maybe, just maybe, we will pick it. All right, let's race now into the movie news section. What has been happening in the movie news section, folks, this week? What's Hollywood been giving us? There's been some exciting news in terms of sort of Mostly TV, I think. Like, we're having a Wednesday Adams TV show. From Tim Burton. From Tim Burton making his TV debut. Which I don't see why Tim Burton would be particularly attracted to the aesthetic of the Adams family. <laughs> it does seem odd, doesn't it? I yeah. know. Uh, it's a real departure for him, but I feel like uh, it could work. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued because I feel like there have been there, there was a web series that a, was a comedian in LA I think did of you know a growing up Wednesday Adams which was brilliant. If they can capture some of that kind of anarchic spirit, it could be fantastic. It could go horribly wrong, like super mm. horribly wrong. But I'm I'm kind of optimistic for this one. I think it could be it could be fun. No, I'm I'm on board with it. I think Wednesday's a great character. I think it's going to be in Nola Holmes with more spiders, I guess. <laughs> yep. Excited to see that Captain Marvel has a nemesis, a nemesis, a nemesu, whatever you want to call her. Uh, Zoe Ashton's going to be playing the villain in Captain Ooh. Marvel 2. And I'm a big fan of hers for, from her appearances in Case History, but uh, from Fresh Meat, where, where she plays Vod, who is the best mm. character in the show. Uh, so, yeah, very excited about this one. Do we know who she's playing yet? No, we don't. It's under wraps. We do not know who she is going to be, um, but it's almost certainly Galactus. 
Um, also in very exciting casting news, Regé Jean Page has joined the cast of Dungeons and Dragons along with Chris Pine. So we're going to have Chris Pine, Regé Jean Page, the Duke of Hastings, if you will, and uh, and dragons, which is, it's hard to imagine anything more me. Do My we God. think it will be along the same themes as Bridgerton? So you'll get to see his dungeon, but probably not his dragon, that kind of thing. <laughs> I think it's dragon, but not his dungeons, really. But, <laughs> well, um, I mean, who knows, Helen? Depends what kind of knows? film it is. But it's, it's from the Game Night directors, Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. And yeah. uh, it just it sounds, a lot of, sounds a lot of fun. Michelle Rodriguez and Justice Smith in there as well. And dragons. That sounds exciting. Um, oh, did we? Was it this week? We also got to see the um, the full trailer for Cruella. Yeah, only yesterday. Yes, it was. As it was we yesterday, record. in fact. Oh my yeah. god, time time is a construct. It's blending into one for me at the moment. But uh, yeah, I, this is very very exciting. So yeah, it looked good. I have to say, it looked good. It looks amazing in terms of just the look of it. Um, and Emma Stone and Emma Thompson, it's very hard to go wrong. I, I am, you know my <laughs> you know feelings. know what's coming. <laughs> you know my feelings on prequels and redemptory stories for bad guys. Like I have pro- problems with both and I, I don't need Cruella redeemed in any fashion. So I'm a little concerned, but I'm, I'm super here for her hair and eye makeup. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to just focus on those to get me through it. I didn't detect much of a redemption story in this. Well, but no, but she's, you know, the put upon person who goes bad for a reason. That's kind of, it's maybe not redemption per se, but uh-huh. it's certainly sympathy. Right. Sympathy yeah. for the devil. There's a song Indeed. about that. For the devil, if you will. Oh my goodness. Uh, it's nominative determinism at its best, isn't it, it Shirley? Is, yeah. or, unless her name is like Jane Smith at the beginning and she changed it to Cruella de Vil because maybe that name is so over the top and so that's it. Um, <laughs> that she that she has changed it to strike fear into the hearts of all those lovely puppies. Maybe it's like Cinderella and she was actually born Ella and then they mm-hmm. added the crew beforehand. Maybe she was on her university rowing team. We don't know. Yes, you know? Certainly so. the, yes we don't Because certainly the end of the trailer where she goes, I'm Cruella, seems to be her claiming a name for herself. Ah, I see. In, in the same way that um, Jeffrey Badman claims the name Joker for himself at the end <laughs> of uh, Todd Phillips' uh, uh, multi-Oscar-nominated uh, acclaimed <sighs> movie, Joker. <laughs> Which of which uh, someone on Twitter, Scott Weinberg, said that uh, he thinks that this looks like a female version of the Joker. That Disney has made a female version of Joker, and I immediately thought this is that makes it Helen's film of the year. <laughs> yeah, I'm busy that day. It's such. A shame. I'm busy that day, but it's gonna. Well, you can. It's on Disney Plus. You can see it whenever you want. No, no, busy, very busy. Is it on Disney Plus, or did I make it? Well, we know it's on May 28th. We are kind of assuming it will be at the very best a hybrid release. Like if we're very lucky, the cinemas will be open, mm, uh, but mm-hmm. it will also, I imagine, be on Disney Plus. But I, I suspect it may just be on Disney Plus at this rate. Mm. We'll have to see. Well, oh. so is everything else because Star launches next week Yay. on the 27th, bringing lots and lots of adult content to Disney Plus. No, not like that. Um, but that's pretty wow. exciting. Wow. So <laughs> indeed, yes, all the hardcore porn you could want well, appearing on Disney Plus. No, uh, <laughs> diehards going to be there. I don't know if it's, it's, it's a selection of diehards anyway is going to be there. Um, Planet of the Apes films are going to be there. Mm. Kingsman films are going to be there. Uh, Alien Covenant, which I've already spoiled for you, will be on Disney Plus. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so that's quite exciting. Plus it's a load of good. awesome legacy series like Twenty Four and Loss uh, and Sons of Anarchy and the X Files and all sorts of stuff. So um, yeah, I'm, mm. I'm, I must admit I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, it's going to be good. Mm. Um, 
Jesse Plemons uh, last night, as we record this, was announced as a, the new member of the cast of Killers of the Flower Moon. The cast has been like in place for a long time, and then they keep wanting to change roles. So yeah, so DiCaprio was originally cast as the FBI agent who's investigating this series of murders on the Osage Reservation, where a vast amount of oil has been found, and where which has made the locals basically the richest people per head in the US. Um, and then he wanted to play the role of Ernest Burkhardt, who is married to the sister, I think, of one of the victims and the daughter of one of the victims. Um, and But it's a smaller role. So they needed someone to then come in and play the FBI agent, and that will be Plemons, which I think is good casting. And I think it means we're in for some very interesting kind of uh, acting face-offs. So DiCaprio is now De Niro's nephew, uh, which seems kind of appropriate in terms of their place in Scorsese's filmography. <laughs> Without De Niro, there is no DiCaprio, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Well, you know what I say, Helen? What do you say? If life gives you Jesse Plemons, make Jesse Plemonade. Do you, do you say right. that a lot, Chris? Like, are you are you often <laughs> the called upon to say that? Wow. You you've asked me to stop saying that in the past. Because I mean, I certainly will. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty much all I would say uh, <laughs> in lieu of you know, normal conversation. Mm. Um, you mentioned face-off there. There's going to be an acting face-off. And uh, mm. that brings us neatly on, in the interest of wonderful segues, to the face-off sequel. Now, this is interesting. Yeah. So, Adam Wingard, <laughs> the director of Your Next and good, The Guest, mm -hmm. uh, and he's the director of Kong versus Godzilla, or is it Godzilla versus Kong? I genuinely can never remember the the, the way, the, the order of the, of the monsters in that movie, which will be out probably April for us, but maybe next month. And uh, he was announced this week as the director of a reboot of John Woo's 1997 seminal action classic, Face Off. Uh, and then Wingard took to the socials this week to say, actually, I would never reimagine a remake Face Off. Sacrilege. Instead of making a sequel. So, not sure how that's much better, but okay. <laughs> so, um, he's making a sequel uh, about that. We don't know, but that does, of course, bring in the tantalizing thought that a Travolta, or possibly even a Cage, um, even though a Cage is technically dead. Dead, yeah. But you know, when you could, if you can swap people's faces, you can do all sorts mm, of stuff. True. So who knows? Maybe Castor Troy has a has a kid who looks just like Nick Cage, or or whatever. <laughs> and is the age yeah. that Nick uh, yeah. Cage would be now? Okay. Yes. It's, yeah. It's going to be called okay. Face On, and it's going to be Castor Troy's son just eating a peach for hours, and that's the whole film. <laughs> oh my god! That sounds like the sort of content you can get on Star. If you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, what do we think of this? What do we what do we make of this? This is going to be a fun and exciting opportunity for two actors to just kind of chew the scenery, right? Yeah, I mean, you have to hope it's the sort of the color of money to the originals, The Hustler, right? I mean, it, it, there is such a thing as a good belated sequel. There's just a lot of very bad ones as well. But I, I feel like it's a very threadbare concept in some ways. You know, it's quite yeah. a basic concept. And the the key is getting two actors who are, as you say, willing to chew all of the scenery and each other's faces off um, in order to make it kind of work. Probably not chew each other's faces. They'll use lasers again. You know, that seemed to work better. Yeah, I think a sort of more lo-fi technique wouldn't yeah, necessarily probably work. Wouldn't, no, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't be hygienic either. Just yeah. a, a bit of skin, a flap of skin just hastily <laughs> affixed to someone's face with a bit of Pritt stick. Mm. Doesn't, yeah. quite, doesn't yeah. quite work. <laughs> Maybe Joan Allen will come back instead of either of the men. Maybe Joan Allen would be the person who has her face taken off. You know, you could do all sorts of stuff with this. You could do all Joan sorts Allen of stuff with Laura this. Joan Allen and Laura Linney, and no one can tell that they've swapped. <laughs> 
Oh, because nothing says bums and seats like the, the, the powerhouse box office hey. combination that is Laura Linney and Joan Allen. No, listen, I'm all for it. I'm all I've for been it. There. Exciting. Because you do all sorts of stuff. You could have a man talking faces with a woman, a man talking faces with a dog. Than, I mean, I, I think it would take a bit more work than just the face. Anyway, that's, yeah, sure. That's cool. right, because yep. of the pointy bits. <sighs> <laughs> I've, forgo- I've forgotten about the never pointy forget bits. The pointy bits. Yeah, never, never forget the pointy bits. Never forget the pointy bits. Okay. <laughs> okay. Else? Yeah, else? a few, a f- couple of other stories. Um, Black Adam is creeping ever closer to production. Uh, how may call it? Sarah still down to direct. Dwayne Johnson, of course, down to star. Now Marwan Kanzari has uh, joined the ensemble. He was the super hot one in the Old Guard, if you remember, and uh, the baddie in <laughs> I mean, Aladdin. Um. Okay, one of the super hot ones in the old guard. I apologise. Um, and we actually know that he is playing a bad guy here, uh, thanks to a tweet Ooh. from Hannah Flint last night who challenged The Rock. She said, I'm going to be really disappointed if this guy's been cast as a bad guy. And, and he goes, well, I guess you're going to be disappointed then. So Uh-oh. Yeah, so he, we don't know which character he's playing, but we do know that. Uh-oh. So, uh, hey-ho. Uh, Kiki Palmer is going mm-hmm. to star in Jordan Peele's next movie. I'm very, very excited about it. It's probably going to be some sort of high-concept horror movie. It's got a release date. It's coming out in 2022, COVID, of course, permitting. And it will also star a uh, fast-rising up-and-comer, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, reteaming with Peele after Get Out. So Get In is my response to this. Indeed. That sounds good. Hey, so Zack Snyder was in the news this week. Uh, oh, talking, yeah. yeah, talking about Does his plans. Does he have plans. a film out soon, Helen? He has, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting philosophical question, isn't it? Is it, <laughs> is it a film uh, that's coming out soon or is it a film that has already come out, I, well, I guess? Um, is a film, when is a film not a film? When is when a film not a film? Jarred. When it's a when it's a Snyder Cut. Anyway, <laughs> when, no, when but yes, jarred, you're right. Hey. The Snyder Cut is coming out next month on HBO Max and hopefully in some fashion in this country. We're not quite sure yet, or at least I'm not. You may be. I don't know. He was talking about this and he is hoping to make, this is not greenlit at all. This is something he's working on, um, but he has been working on what he calls a kind of retelling, a real sort of faithful retelling of that Arthurian mythological concept. Now, I'm not sure what he means exactly by faithful because we're talking about a set of wildly contradictory myths from at least four different parts of the UK and France over a period of about a millennium. Um, but uh, nevertheless, he's he's looking at trying to get into an Ar- a King Arthur film. Uh, the last one was, I think we can all agree, not great, apart from maybe like its soundtrack and the giant elephants. They were fun. I, I, so I guess he'd be moving away from giant elephants. But I don't know quite what faithful means in, in this in this context. And, and and I really would love to hear from any, you know, Arthurian scholars who can tell me what it might be. But you could do the sort of Bernard Cornwell kind of hyper-realistic version, but I think that's what Antoine Fuqua kind of tried to do with mm-hmm. the Clive Owen one. So I just I, I genuinely don't know what this looks like. I'm wondering if we should just go, look, it's never gonna be as good as Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's never gonna be as good as Excalibur. <laughs> Let's just call the whole thing off. What I'd like to see, honestly, is them just do like a big old high fantasy type thing and just yes. lean into it rather than, rather than it being gritty and trying to like hew to all the different iterations of King Arthur because there's so many myths and so many legends and so many disparities in, in uh, amongst them, uh, as Twitter was keen to remind Zack Snyder the other day. That, you know, just go, just go nonsense. Just go nonsense. Take the basic, basic premise. You have a sword, you have a stone, you have a table. It's round. You have a, you have a wizard. He does wizardy things. There's a king. 
His best mate's fucking his wife. Just go with that. <laughs> Just go with that and have lots of spells and, you know, maybe a school for magic and maybe a ring of some kind, which brings me wow. neatly. Oh, neatly. segue. Oh, my God. And you may you may wonder, Chris, had you forgotten to plug the magazine? And yes, I had. But luckily, I reminded myself in the last 30 seconds, the new issue of Empire is on sale right now, folks. Right now, it is New Empire Week. In all good and evil news agents, you will find the latest issue of Empire magazine and digitally as well of course, and it is a cracking, cracking issue. I know we say that every month, and again, this is one of the months where we mean it. And it is a wonderful, wonderful issue. It is a celebration of 20 years of magic. Uh, they were so kind, they realised that I had started uh, working at Empire 20 years ago, so they dedicated... <laughs> is, that, is that what it is? That's what I choose to believe. Uh, <laughs> okay. By some sort of weird cosmic coincidence, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter also came out in 2001. And even though, yes, you may say that Harry Potter didn't come out until November of that year and Lord of the Rings didn't come out until December of that year, we had decided to beat the rush. Beat the rush, folks, because by the end of the year, you're going to be sick of this. Um, So we have decided to dedicate a whole ton of pages to revisiting the magic of Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, delving deep into our archives, doing new interviews with scene stealers from the films, and producer David Heyman, who's a producer of the Harry Potter movies, answers your questions, readers' questions um, about those movies as well. And on the cover is a a once-in-a-lifetime epochal event in which we bring together Frodo Baggins and Harry Potter. Oh yes, the boy who lived and the hobbit who walked. Tanya Radcliffe and Elijah Wood, in case you're not sure who I'm talking about. They are together for the first time ever, incredibly, despite the fact that they are the same person. They have never (laughs) been in the same room. And thanks to COVID-compliant rules, they still haven't been in the same room, but we we faked it uh, with some photographic magic. And we got them together on a Zoom call uh, for a lovely, long, in-depth interview, um, which which is just... Just tremendous. Great stuff. Well done, everybody. Pat's in the back all around. Even yeah. if you had nothing to do with it. If you had nothing to do with it, as I didn't, then <laughs> pat yourself in the back. Well done, everybody. I did. I talked to Stuart Craig all about Hogwarts and talked to Mrs. Proudfoot about her oh little moment God. in uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. So I got the big one. Yeah. It doesn't get any better than that. She was a delight, actually. Really a yes. delight. Oh, my God. Listen, I could regale you all day with tales of what's in the magazine. Um but I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to let the cover feature speak for itself. And maybe I'll talk about it next week when I actually have a copy of the magazine <laughs> and I can remember what's Mine in it. Mine hasn't arrived. But basically, it's fantastic. There are other things inside the issue as well. If you don't like Harry Potter, there's a feature about um, other things. So, all good. All good. I think that's top selling. That's top selling. That's that incredible. Is top selling. We're, we're incredible. like the opposite of John Lewis. We're never knowing he's sold. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that is available right now in all good and evil news agents or digitally as well. Rush out and get it. It is a belter, folks. One last thing we should absolutely mention in news, especially after the year we have all had. Paddington 3 is officially happening. And that, that, frankly, is a vaccine in and of itself. (laughs) Inject it into my veins, into my eyeballs. Yes, yes, thank God. Let's hope it's as good as the first two, um, because, yeah, I'm I'm here for that. Yeah, hot marmalade Uh, injection. Yeah, oh, wait, oh, that doesn't sound healthy. Uh, yeah, I, I, in fact, that is kind of why I mentioned Paddington 3 at the beginning of the podcast. That's why I mentioned Rosamund Pike, uh, mm. who could be, I think, would be a, a fine villain. Um, you know, or whether, you know, Paddington has to fight the sort of League of Extraordinary Baddens. So you have Millicent <laughs> Clyde coming together with Phoenix Buchanan 
And perhaps Phoenix Buchanan is accused of murder and Millicent has to stand by him whilst he goes on trial, maybe over the course of six episodes. No, hang on, that's the undoing, isn't it? Um, so anyway, <laughs> but you could get Nicole Kidman back, you could get Hugh Grant back and then just drop in a third kind of megastar. So who would be your Paddington 3 bad guy of choice? So first of all, I think Phoenix Buchanan might now be a goodie or at least a you know, semi yes. um because he's too entertaining he's not to be if he turns up He's gone too theatre to be evil. <laughs> No one who likes Sondheim could ever be evil. <laughs> isn't that isn't that like your pet hate though, Helen? Like bad guys who I'll I'll allow it in Paddington's case because I feel like will. that's a that's a series all about redemption. Um so and also we've already seen him in his like, you know, getting over himself and and, and agreeing to do a show where he is not a one man army. So I feel like that would that would totally work. Who is on a similar level to Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant who would be appropriate? Do you know what? Okay, I'm going to aim high here. Tom fucking Cruise. That's it. Tom Cruise as the villain in Paddington 3. Interesting. That's what I want. Interesting. All right. That would be good. He'd be very good. We'll remake Eyes Wide Shut, but with Paddington. Oh, God, no. Oh, my God. Fidelio. Is that on stars? It probably is. <laughs> it's on stars. <laughs> Yes. No one needs to see Paddington at a sex party. I just, I just need to put that out there right now. Bear bears are just not going to happen. Yeah. Oh my god. Hey, here's my idea for a Paddington three bad guy. Okay. I want them to go full Superman three. Okay. And I don't mean have Paddington turn evil. You Absolutely know, not. Some sort of corrupted marmalade that sends him all doolally. Because no. no one could buy that. No. No one could buy that for a second. Sweetest little bear in the world. But what if he has a cousin? who shows up from the Peruvian forest, oh. who's an absolute fucking bellend. And he could be played, <laughs> he could be played by Colin Firth, bringing it all nicely full circle. Okay. I see what you did though. I mean, I yeah. don't like casting Colin Firth as an utter bellend though, so. Yeah, it's not really believable. Evil Paddington just eats jars of Marmite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I should point out now, good. I love Marmite. I'm actually not opposed to it, but I, I think it would be a nice counterpoint. In fact, Marmalade is fucking disgusting. I'd take Marmite over Marmalade <gasps> any day of the week. I swear, How everything you've said in this podcast has reinforced that you're some sort of weird sociopath. I am evil Paddington. Yes, that's true. <laughs> you really are. James Dyer is going to be the star of Paddington 3 as the evil bear who tries to bring Paddington down. And With that, Marmite. folks is how you bring things full circle. <laughs> and uh, it's also uh, providing us with a neat segue into our final guest this week because it is Rosamund Pike and she is playing a full-blown sociopath in the wickedly entertaining one and only I Care A Lot in which she plays an unscrupulous professional guardian whose modus operandi is to find a vulnerable old people, basically have them committed to care homes she takes over possession of their properties and their lives, sells off their stuff and makes a healthy, healthy profit uh, until one day she comes across someone who seems sweet and uh, unprepossessing. And, and then all of a sudden she realizes that she potentially is in way over her head. And it's fantastic. I love this film, uh, mm. as we'll discuss in the review section later. Uh, and Rosamund Pike is phenomenal in it, uh, nominated for Golden Globe. And who knows, there may even be an Oscar nomination in the offing for her as well. Terrific film, terrific performance. And I was delighted to have Rosamund back on the podcast. The, she is the first guest in the pandemic to be on the podcast twice. She's still in Prague, where she's now basically living uh, while she's shooting and prepare for Squeeze, The Wheel of Time. <laughs> 
I wasn't so much of a squee as a, some sort of prime. I don't even know what the fuck that was. <laughs> that, there we go. That, that translated was, uh, was uh, I guess, I Sedai for Moiraine Damadred of the Blue Aja. But uh, sure. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> I oh tapped into Sidar, you see, in order That's to right. be able to yeah. make that noise. As Helen has pointed out, one does not seize Sidar, one surrenders to it. Yeah. <laughs> I hate you both. Um, <laughs> the wheel of time turns, Chris, the wheel of That's time right. turns. It certainly does, it certainly does. Uh, so anyway, we had a, had, I caught up with Rosamond on Squadcast earlier on this week. We had a good old chat about her living in Prague still and uh, you know what she's doing, you know, Pancake Day, all the big stuff. And we also talked a little bit about I Care A Lot. I will say that there are spoilers in this interview. Um, I'm going to try my best where possible to cut around them, but sometimes they're just embedded in the conversation. I didn't do it. Not my fault. It was my bike's fault. So perhaps don't listen to this until you've seen I Care A Lot. Okay, there you go. Which you've is out this week. You've been one. Which is out this week, and it's fantastic, and it's on Netflix or Amazon, one of the two. <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> Netflix, thank you. And <laughs> I'm fully prepared, as always. And... <laughs> 20 years, 20 years I've been doing this shit. Um, and and, and uh, yeah, so watch the film and then come back and listen to the interview. Although it's not a spoiler special interview per se, but you know, nevertheless, be warned. Here we go. Rosamund Pike, do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the star of I Care A Lot, making a glorious return to the Empire Podcast, Rosamund Pike. How are you? Thank you, Chris. Um, I'm very well. Still well. Still well. <laughs> Happy Pancake Day, yes. by the way. Thank you. Yes, I, I, I've sent some. Uh, I've sent a, a search party out for flour and eggs and extra milk. So, <laughs> what is your pancake game? Do you like the, the sort of the crepes, or do you like the more fluffy, thick American no, style no, pancakes? I, I, I'm very English. No, I go for the. I go for the crepe said with a full English accent. Don't try and French fry it. Um, and I will be trying to do a triple flip and uh, all the good, all the good things. Eat with lemon and sugar, maybe. I, I still like lemon and sugar best. Yeah, um, nothing wrong with it. It's a, it's a lovely combination. Just just lean into the lovely combinations. Don't yeah. mess around with all this highfalutin stuff, honestly. <laughs> uh, but yes, welcome back to the Emperor Podcast. You are incredibly the first guest we've had on twice in the midst of a global pandemic. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just sort of reinforces the fact that I'm always available, Chris. It, just sort of <laughs> <laughs> it reinforces the fact that you're busy and you've got loads of great stuff coming out, which is which is good. Uh, but I think we last spoke in June. I don't think any of us expected the pandemic to be still going on. But uh, here we are, hopefully with some light at the end of the tunnel. But you're still, you're still in Prague. Uh, I'm still in correct? Prague. I'm still in Prague. Yes, in yeah. deep snow at the moment as we speak which is very oh, wow. beautiful. Yeah, still in Prague. for the. I mean, this is home now, really. I mean, it, I'm not sort of stranded in Prague. I, I, I did move my family here when I started working on the Wheel of Time series for Amazon. Yeah. So this is home. This is home. So you, you've got to know every nook, every cranny. Yeah, still, still lots to explore, but definitely that's always what interests me in foreign cities is the nooks, are the nooks and crannies, yeah. you know. The, the finding the secrets, I think. <laughs> uh, and then not telling anyone about them so they remain secret for you. For you. Uh, how are you with the language? Are you adept? Because I, I know you can, you're, you can speak a couple of languages. No, I haven't yet embarked on learning Czech, apart mm -hmm. from, you know, enough to, to just not be, you know, catastrophically rude in shops, you know, enough to be uh, attempting something. Because I do think it's so... Uh, I do hate the kind of English assumption that you can go in and just start speaking English. I really 
I really hate that. That's one of the kind of little acts of rudeness that I really don't like. Even if you mm. just say, please, can I speak English? I think it's a lot better. Um, yes. But I, I have got a Czech teacher lined up. It's just that I don't know if we spoke about it, but my pandemic project was learning Chinese. And I'm, you know, uh, you know, which is an ambitious one. You know, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll give it to me. But uh, <laughs> the combination of Czech and Chinese at the same time is pretty daunting. And, and, you know, the numbers of sort of, um, you know, sounds that we just do not make in English in both those languages is, is staggering, really. So you have to retrain your mouth to do things that it's just never been taught to do. Mm. I saw your uh, Instagram post the other day when you wished people. Oh, you did? Thank you. Yes. Well, it was was my attempt, you know, work in progress. My children said, my children who do speak Chinese said it wasn't ready for public viewing. Um, but I, I thought, well, if you never, you know, if you never get not get on the ice, <laughs> you know, you never make any progress at all, do you? So you've just got to. And actually, the the ponds have now frozen, so I could be getting on the ice later today, literally for real. <laughs> so <laughs> and going out and speaking Chinese on the ice in Prague <laughs> in the middle of the snow. What a time! What an amazing time! Uh, and uh, before we move on to, I care a lot. Um, are you are you still? Filming on on Wheel of Time at the moment is that still is that still very we're, much going on? Uh, no, we're not. We're not currently filming, but 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 okay. imminently we will be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how's that whole thing been for you in the, in the middle of a pandemic? Um, I had a test the other day, my first test, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. But do you get used to them? I'm, I'm sure you've been getting your quite nasal. A few. Maybe your nasal artist was not the best. It, it wasn't um, that bit. If I'm if I'm honest, that bit was quite ticklish. I quite enjoyed the nasal bit, but it was the it was the swab down the throat that I didn't like. Oh, maybe your nasal artist didn't go deep enough because because it's the na- it's the it's the brain scrape through the nose that we've always objected to. <laughs> That's um, I mean, yes, we would sort of have this code in one another's eyes because we were getting tested daily um, mm. while we were shooting. And, you know, you'd see from people's eyes which tent to go into, which, which, which of the nasal artists, you know, it was better to queue up for because you could see people literally weeping, leaving these tents, you know, <laughs> eyes watering. And you thought, right, I'll divert to the other line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, when you're having it daily, it's, it is quite ruthless. But also, obviously, it, it reassures you that, you know, the virus is still at bay. Mm-hmm. My son has just come in with a, a pair of, of sunglasses. Of, oh, okay. No, no, with a pair of sunglasses that I, I had lost, and he has, uh, <laughs> he has uh, miraculously found. He's a great thing finder, my my son. So okay. Yeah. See, now you look like a real Hollywood star wearing sunglasses oh, indoors. Uh, to- indoors for a radio interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at ten in the morning. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yeah. So no, it's, it's good. It's good. I mean, uh, you look like I feel because uh, I was up to three a.m. Uh, and need sunglasses, Rosamond. So why? Why were you up <laughs> really, till three a.m.? Nothing rock and roll. I was just writing a feature until three a.m. And uh, you know, the 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 muse struck me at one a.m. So I started rewriting ah. it from scratch. So so uh, I haven't yeah. had a lot of sleep. So if my questions are even more incoherent than normal, then please forgive me. There was always that thing that people said to you. I don't know. People. Uh, somebody always said a, a tired actor is a good actor. I never quite know what it means, but on the days that I really am shattered, it, it gives me sort of tremendous sort of reinforcement. Does it, free, does it free you up? Well, I don't know what the theory is. Somebody told it to me without, but it was secondhand information. Mm. Um, I suppose it means that you're, you know, you're not operating on enough cylinders to sort of get in the way of yourself or something. 
Mm. Um, I mean, I generally don't believe that that's true, but on the days that I'm absolutely shattered, it gets me through. <laughs> so, so, yeah. I feel very much like I've been on a night shoot at the moment. Uh, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, like and I was also thinking that when you end up watching your film back, you know, you, although there are obviously many days where you just haven't had enough sleep and you feel, you know, wretched. You know, I was thinking, you know, I don't watch I Care a lot now and think, oh, God, that was the day I was so tired. You know, you don't, you never look back and see it, you know, somehow. You never yes. think, oh, you know, oh, dear, that, that scene's ruined for me because I was so tired. Because um, how, do you, how yeah. do you do it with, with I Care a lot, which is an incredible film, an incredible performance. Congratulations, indeed, on the, on the Golden oh. Globe nomination. Um, Thank you very much. How, how do you shape your performance how do you approach it because it's a role that requires a lot of physicality and i don't just mean that in terms of the stuff that marley gets up to i don't want to go into spoilers obviously but you know let's just say you're not desk bound all the time in this movie uh but just just pacing yourself uh with with a role this demanding how do you do that um well, you, you rely quite heavily on your allies, who are your fellow castmates and your director. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we were going at a, at a very relentless pace. We, we filmed the whole movie in, I think, six and a half weeks. So it was very fast. And, you know, we did the typical sort of American work week where you start every Monday at 4 a.m. And then by the time you get to the Saturday, we call it, well, Friday, we call it a Friday because you're usually finishing at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning. That's your Friday. Um, so the, it, they're punishing weeks. Um, but Marla, I mean, she was such a trip to play, to be honest. She was, you know, her relentless energy got me through because, you know, she's always on her game and, and that sort of motivates you. And, mm. um, you know, calibrating it, it she, she's interesting. She's interesting as a character because she, she can act. You know, she's able to yes. co-opt those traditional notions of pleasing femininity and kind of, you know, co-opt them and deploy them as she feels necessary to get what she wants. You know, whether it's convincing a judge, convincing a courtroom, um, you know, speaking very eloquently in a care home about the care of one of her wards or, or even extracting uh, an elderly person who doesn't know anything about the fact that they have now become a ward of uh, a legal guardian. Mm. Um, you know, she has to deploy, you know, um, authenticity and warmth and uh, sympathy and, uh, you know, she has to pass herself off as an upstanding member of the community. And, and, and in fact, she's none of those things. She's ruthless, ambitious, uh, lacks, you know, lacks a lot of empathy, um, is able to kind of completely depersonalize people and treat them just as sort of chattels or kind of, you know, problems to be solved. Um, but for me, any part like that where you get to act within the role is always, is always fun and challenging and interesting. How do you put your character in terms of her authenticity? Because I think there are moments later on as the movie develops where we get to see, we see her smile all the way through the movie, but most of the time it's, as you say, for show, uh, or it doesn't quite reach the eyes. But there are moments towards the end of the film where we do see that she's beginning to revel in her situation. Again, I don't want to go too much into spoilers. And so at what point do you know as an actor that you're playing the real Marla? That's an interesting question. 
I mean, there's a scene uh, about, well, I guess just over halfway through with Peter Dinklage's character where, you know, you've sort of been waiting for these two characters to face one another and you don't know when it's going to be, but I think you guess that it will come. Um, And when they do face each other, Marla is at a distinct disadvantage in the situation. (laughs) And, And yet she she takes it as an opportunity that she has to leave an impression on this guy. You know, she has to make a mark. And, and she says something about wanting to be rich. She says, you know, she says, I want, she says, I want to be rich. I want to be really fucking rich. I want to be able to use money as a weapon Mm. in the way that real rich people do like Mm -hmm. a bludgeon. And I, for me, that's always been like, that is Marla's truth. That is what she wants. She wants unashamedly. She wants money. She sees money as freedom. She sees money as the way that her ticket to other people not using her. And I, and I think that, you know, when I, when I came to do that scene, I thought, and I didn't really necessarily, I hadn't really identified it as such because, you know, so often she is being very smart with her lines. And then when that came out, I thought, oh God, that's Marla's truth. You know, she's actually revealed her cards. That's her sort of, that's the kind of underbelly, the kind of, you know, the grit in her, in her whole scheme. That's what she wants. She wants Mm. money. She wants the freedom that money can bring. And that's the American dream too. That's the sort of, you know, Marla's business as a legal guardian and a a sort of uh, pillar in the elderly care you know, healthcare scene, she, mm. she would, she would have become a sort of pillar of industry. I mean, she would have been deeply respected. Grace and guardianships would sort of have become a, a leader in the, in the field. And, 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 you know, as is so often with America, you know, any shady beginnings of a fortune are quickly within a couple of years washed clean, it seems. <laughs> to yes. me. You know? Yes. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a tremendous film in terms of, and, and the way Jay Blakeson has, has written this movie and directed it is incredible in the way that he shifts your sympathies. Uh, and it's not just, I think, as a, as, a, as a result of pitting Marla against Peter Dinklage's character, who is the absolute worst. Uh, it's really interesting the way that he gets you on Marla's side when Marla is... Again, the absolute worst. Uh, but then your your sympathies shift, your loyalties shift all the way through the movie. Uh, but there are reminders all the way through that you know that this is not uh, a character we should be necessarily siding with. But she reminds me of some of those great movie antiheroes like Linda Fiorentino in The Last Seduction with someone who came to mind in this as well. And and obviously, and I imagine this was something that that was on your mind as well, Amy and Gone Girl. I think, I don't actually think that Marla and Amy have uh, much in common at all. I do not think they're similar, apart from the fact that I play them both, um, which obviously (laughs) gives a sort of, it does give a dose of similarity. And I think they both have that thing where we're watching something appalling and find Mm. it riveting because it it can be, if if, if there's intelligence behind a scheme, it can be very fun to watch because however bad it is, we are somehow admiring of the hustle. <laughs> yeah. um, and, it, but you see, I mean, Amy is, is a sociopath. I mean, Amy is an extraordinary study in, in sociopathy and narcissism and, and also she, she, she murders, you know, whereas Marla, you know, she has this sort of almost indignation at, at murder. You know, when she says, 
you know, don't bring guns into a care home. Don't murder one of my friends. You know, she's almost shocked that someone should play so dirty, even though she is playing, you know, the dirtiest of all dirty games. But yeah. she's got limits, you know. And I think that's quite funny. And Jay said, you know, remember, Marla never handles a gun in our film. You know, she doesn't go further than a, than a taser, <laughs> which I think is, <laughs> you know, I've always found sort of quite, a, you know, it's typical of sort of Jay's humour that um, – and, and Marla has this – sort of grit she's got this she's like a sort of scrappy street fighter dressed up in designer clothing because you know when marla you know the way she claws herself back from the brink i i don't know that amy would be able to do that amy amy wins when she gets to plan every tiny detail and her planning is meticulous it's 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 fearsome it's mm-hmm. um you know and she uses public perception you know you know, and she 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 makes out that she's the victim, and she convinces the whole of America that she is the victim in her story, and then we realise that she's actually driving the plot. Whereas, mm. you know, Marla, you know, Marla never plays to to kind of win. She never uses any of the tropes that other femme fatales have used. She doesn't use sexuality at all. Mm-hmm. No. She doesn't present herself as a victim, and I think those are two very interesting layers that that jay has put into this film you know she's a queer woman in a married to a woman her sexuality does just doesn't feature as a as a sort of you know game factor in in the whole story and i think that's that's quite unusual i mean linda fiorentino who you know you rightly selected as a as a kind of the same type i mean that was a film that jay and i watched couple of times oh, okay. before shooting this movie, yeah. Because, you know, she is a bitch in that movie. You can, you know, she's very unpleasant. Uh, and yet she's very fun to watch. You never kind of lose interest. And yet she's, you know, but she certainly uses sexuality in a yeah. big way. Yeah. Yeah. Very, and deploys it very, very effectively. And, you know, we were constantly trying to find the line that we could tread um, where, I could push the kind of awfulness and remain uh, <laughs> and still be fun to watch. That was our hope, you know. But 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 the interesting thing about Marla is that she just doesn't deploy the traditional kind of weapons of femininity. It's really interesting that Marla is perpetually all the way through the movie the most intelligent person in the room, just the smartest person in the room, and that comes to, into play in a number. There's just some delicious scenes in this in this movie, Rosamond. There's there are one on one confrontations with uh, Chris Messina's character. That that wonderful scene with him. There's a great scene with Diane Vist as well, and of course, as you mentioned, the Peter Dinklage scene. Uh, 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 also, can you talk about approaching those scenes? Is that something that, as an actor, you get especially mm-hmm. excited about? Those wonderful exchanges. You know that that old that old uh you know almost cliched metaphor of the tennis game is that something that rings true in the, in these cases uh, definitely um jay gave us you know tremendous a tremendous sort of wealth of riches in in the script you know often uh, films have a couple of really great dialogue scenes i mean jay just peppers them all the way through this film um and you know because it's pure drama you know, it's a screenplay that is not adapted from a novel. It's not adapted from life. It's 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 a you know proper drama through and through. You know, but both characters or want something from the scene, 
Mm. So everybody is trying to achieve an end. Um, you know, and I'm trying to usually get someone to do something, get someone to stop doing something, uh, persuade some, someone that I'm something I'm not, or, you know, I need this, there's always something very concrete that I need to achieve. And we didn't have the luxury of rehearsal for this film, but you know, what was required, it was never stated, but I think every actor sort of knew it, that these were not scenes that you could memorize the morning of, you know, you needed to be all over this dialogue. You needed to know it backwards, forwards, any which way. Um, because they were long scenes, you know, Chris Masida and I have, I think, a 12 page dialogue scene in that, mm. in the office. Um, and Chris came in, you know, just totally with his A game. And I mean, the whole day was just so fun because I didn't know what he was going to throw at me. And I had to adapt according to what he did throw at me. He had to adapt according to what I threw at him. You know, we had no expectation of how each other were going to deliver stuff. And the same with Diane Wiest. You know, my, my first scene with her was the scene where I have to extract her from her home. I have to convince this perfectly able-bodied elderly lady that um, the court has deemed her less than able to take care of herself and as such for her own safety and protection have appointed her a legal guardian. And mm. that is me. Mm. Um, and for her safety, because she's, you know, no longer able to take care of herself and has been struggling, uh, we are going to move her into a care facility. And of course, you know, this is a woman who is perfectly able to take care of herself. It's just that I've had a doctor um, sign a form to say that, you know, she's, you know, showing some signs of loss of, uh, loss of memory and uh, anxiety, and, and it's gone through the court in the way that it can. But Diane, uh, you know, had a number of ways she could have played that part. Um, and I don't think she selected any of the more obvious routes. You know, she, <laughs> she, she didn't uh, give me a sense of sort of, uh, you know, doubt and insecurity. She gave me a robust sense of self. You know, she said, but I'm not struggling. She laughed in my face. So therefore I had the same lines to use, but I had to, you know, twist them to, you know, feign understanding, you know, think how, how am I going to get her out of here? Because she's saying, but this is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, she's not in awe of the legal papers. She's not scared of them. And the only point that she really starts to waver is, you know, thank goodness I had the nows to get some backup. And you know, I don't know, I presume feed a box of donuts to some local cops and ask them to wait on the street for 20 minutes while I do this. So I'm able to sort of signal that there are these cops standing out on the street. And that's the thing that sort of gets her alarm bells ringing. But, you know, that was what was so fun about this screenplay is that Jay wrote this electric dialogue, but it, he gave people tremendous freedom to interpret the scenes as they wished, you know, bring their own personality to bear on them. So it meant, you know, you're right. The tennis game was, that was what it was like. You know, you, it was, it was like you, 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 you could never take your eyes off the ball of the other person. And, you know, you might have a little volley to come in or you might, you know, suddenly have to kind of swing deep and wide. And, and I mean, that was, it was fun. I mean, I haven't had so much fun with dialogue, uh, for a long time, probably since I made State of the Union, actually, with Chris oh, O'Dowd. Really? I don't know if you, yeah, which are, again, like those long rallies of dialogue, you know, it's, I do, when you've got a good actor and you're both word perfect on it, it's, it's really fun. Well, uh, Rosamond, I do have to let you go. I've got to let you get back to, to your crepes, crepes. Oh, uh, yes, crepe. they, they, I don't know, I don't know if the search parties uh, 
uh, come back with the ingredients yet. But um, are you? Will you be? Will you be? Will you be crepping as well? Uh, it's a very personal question, and I don't wish to answer it. But uh, I, I, I will be at some point. Yes, uh, I hope so. Even even if it is just shop bought, I will indulge in, in the noble tradition. Uh, I do have to ask one last thing, real quick, though. I mean, when whenever we last spoke, you talked about this glow in the dark LED rave mask that you had. You oh, still have and that? I didn't. I could have. I could have had it. I could have brought I, it. I want to show and tell today, but uh, sadly, sadly, we haven't. We haven't done that. But you still oh, have no. it. You still wear it. Oh, I certainly do. Yes, yes, I do. I've actually done a few. I, I who did I do? I did an interview for Radioactive actually with it on in the dark with the rave mask going. <laughs> uh, yes, and it was quite fitting for Radioactive, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Well, maybe next time. Maybe next time. But I'll hopefully have to next time. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll yes. have to make a note that when we speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, next time. Or if it's ever in studio, I can. And we have to be socially distanced. I can come in. <laughs> hopefully next time we won't be socially distanced. Hopefully next time pandemic will be over. We'll all be vaccinated. It'll be fine. Uh, I'm, I'm presuming that'll be for for wheel of time. So we'll hope to have you back on for yeah. that as well. Yeah. Uh, Rosman, it's been a pleasure as always. Hey, Thank likewise. you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. So that was Rosamund Pike. And now it is time to talk about Rosamund Pike's performance in I Care A Lot, in which he plays the unscrupulous Marla Grayson. Boo hiss. Or is it boo hiss? Yes. Helen. Is it? All right. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. No, 100%. Like, I, I watched this with my sister, who every sort of five minutes for the length of the film just went, I hate her. I, <laughs> like, I really hate her. And, and you sure uh, she was talking about the film? I'm I'm at least like seventy percent sure it wasn't me, you know. But no, she it's she's a, an absolutely hissable character. Her entire business model is that she takes vulnerable elderly people and separates them ideally from their family and certainly from their assets in order to keep herself in the lifestyle to which she has become accustomed. It is grotesque. It is all too plausible and uh, and that's really where this film gets really scary and unsettling is all of this does seem quite plausible and does really call into question certain aspects of in particular the american system but you suspect that some of the same stuff applies here anyway mm. so she is a legal guardian she gets herself made a legal guardian for these elderly people who maybe don't have close friends or family to kind of watch out for them but she's not one of the good guardians like Groot no. exactly she's Gamora. very much not Groot no okay um, nebula at best, you know. So she um, puts them in a home, uh, sells their houses, strips their assets, and skims huge fees for herself off the top. Ooh. All is well until uh, she comes across a cherry, this perfect mark who seems to have loads of disposable income, no family at all, and looks remarkably like Diane Weist. So she sets about her normal task, her normal thing, but she finds some unexpected assets in the middle of all this. And then complications start to arrive and it emerges that Diane Weist may not be as isolated and alone as she appeared and may in fact have powerful friends in very low places who may make life very, very difficult for Marla. And good. Mm -hmm. And look a lot like Peter Dinklage. And look a lot like Peter Dinklage, yes, with a fantastic beard. 
You know yes. the reason that these people look a lot like Diane Weist and Peter Dinklage is because they are <laughs> Diane Weist and Peter Dinklage, <laughs> right? No, this is a documentary. It's no, not isn't a coincidence. It? No, this, oh. is, yeah. this is not. This is not the case. Okay, all right. You imagine and if someone had no idea what a film was. So this person looks a lot like Rosamund Pike. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there. Um, it's a fantastic cast. It is a really prickly, nasty premise. I am not always a fan of films where there is no one to root for, and there really mm-hmm. isn't. Maybe Diane Weist most of the time even in this then. film. But even then, there is no one to root for in this film. They're all hideous, hideous humans. <laughs> that said, something about the film still kept my attention. I, th- I feel like it's one of these things where I can I can stand a film being this cynical, frankly, if I feel like the filmmakers are on the side of good and truth and everything else. And I feel like they have their heart in the right place and they know right from wrong. So even though none of the characters do, I'm kind of willing to go along with it. In the same way that like uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, you know you know that Martin Scorsese has a moral position, even if DiCaprio's character doesn't, even if Jordan Belfort doesn't. And I feel like that's the case here. Marla is a hideous human who has no concept of right or wrong or doesn't care if she does. But you feel like the storytellers actually do know what they're doing. And I think that makes a huge difference. But yeah, I just thought it was pretty fantastic. It kept me guessing about where it was going. I think it's really, really worth a look. I loved it. It's, it's, I think it's going to polarise people, uh, only to the extent that I think, as you rightly said, there's no access point. Like This fails mm. my bell-end test. For anyone who doesn't listen to the Pilot <laughs> TV podcast, my bell-end test is not what it sounds That's like. Everyone. It, <laughs> it is much like the Bechdel test, except you need two people who are not bell-ends having a conversation with each other about another character in the film who is also not a bell-end. And that does not happen <laughs> in this film because everyone in it is a raging bell-end. How is that not um, the bell-end test? Dectel test. The Belendel test. Belendel test. Because I didn't really think it through that carefully. Um, (laughs) Okay. But everyone in this is just a grade A ironclad gold plated twat. Yeah. And uh, and that's actually quite an achievement. But if you struggle with that, you're going to struggle with this film. Because in many ways, it's just a horrible film because it's horrible people doing horrible things. But it is a satire. It's a satire Mm. on capitalism. It's a satire on the American dream and American culture in general and the kind of greed that underpins it. Uh, And also on sort of elderly care and how people generally, you know, mistreat, you know, or take advantage of or at best neglect a lot of older people. Mm. Uh, So it's actually quite upsetting in its premise. And as as we were alluding to earlier in the podcast, that that abuse of power dynamic is really uncomfortable. But what what I think makes this work is this could have been a really kind of, I won't say lazy, but it could have been a very formulaic film. It could have been, she's an abuser, she abuses the wrong person, turns out there's a Peter Dinklage in the mix who may or may not be connected to the Russian mafia, and she's fucked. But actually, Marla surprises us in that she doesn't bow down, she doesn't you know, lay down for this and she meets it head on. And it's like, you know, who's the worst person in this? It's really hard to tell. Really Mm -hmm. hard. But I I thought they walked that line really carefully because this could have gone horribly wrong in a number of ways. And I think the script is spot on. The dialogue is great. Mm. uh, And I think the casting is absolutely genius. I cannot think of another person who could have played Marla the way Ros Pike does. Yeah. Uh, I think she's... Oh, Ros Pike, is it? (laughs) Oh, that's right. (laughs) We're making friends now. That's right. First name terms, (laughs) abbreviations and everything. I think she's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> she's she's incredible. This yeah. is this is um this comes from Jay Blakeson, the director. I mean his his last big movie was The Fifth Wave back in 2016, which I don't think went quite as well as as everybody hoped. But he before that he did The Disappearance of Alice Creed, and I feel like that's a better calling card for the kind of dark and slightly twisty, turny tone of this. But um mm. but this is I think head and shoulders above both. I think it's a fantastic, mm. fantastic film. Yeah. Absolutely. And as people will have heard in my interview with Roz Pike, um, 
you know, I brought up Amy from Gone Girl, and I I wondered if after Gone Girl, you know, she had kind of run in the other direction from roles that were like that, mm-hmm. and then along comes this gem of a role, which I think is in the same ballpark. Rosamund Pike was, yeah. took pains to go, well, I don't think it's quite the same role as Amy. Amy was is clearly a sociopath. There is something a little bit different about Marla, you know, who doesn't, you know, Resort, you, you heard the interview, you don't need me to regurgitate it, but um, I think there is, you know, they're, they're certainly, if not in the same ballpark, they're certainly in the oh. same postcode. Oh, yeah. And I she think Marla is certainly a sociopath, yeah, but carry on. And she is so good at playing this type of character. Uh, I almost don't want to see her play anything else, quite mm. frankly, because she's tremendous at it. Uh, and fuck it, that's throw Miranda Frost from Die Another Day in there as well for the, <laughs> for the triptych. And yeah, it's, I, I love this film. I absolutely love this film. I saw it very, very late uh, on the night before I was due to interview uh, our good friend Roz. And um, it blew me away. It absolutely blew me away. And, you know, blew away the cobwebs of sleep that I that I had, that I was suffering from. And I thought it was terrific. And yes, there are unlikable, detestable people. And the film is really, really clever at making you think that Marla is the absolute worst, then introduces you to Peter Dinklage's character, who is even worse than she is. And so suddenly you do find your sympathies shifting in a very interesting way for her. Oh, no, I still had no sympathy. Oh, I 100% prayed for her death from the first minute to the last. Okay, well, maybe we'll do a spoiler special on this. I'm hoping to talk to Jay Blakeson uh, next week so we can do a spoiler special. And I think get she into may this. be the worst person in film. So, you know. Really? That's that. I, she's, yeah, she's, absolutely. Okay. I have never hated a film character as much as I hated wow. Mola. <laughs> okay. See, you're redeeming yourself because everything you said so far in this podcast was sociopathic. <laughs> and now I'm going the other way. Yeah, that's it. That you're on the is, wrong side of it. I think there like, is something oh. to redeem. There is something redemptive. Or there is there, there is something about her that isn't is enti- entirely... Is there? Was that so. shoes? I think was so. that it? <laughs> I mean, she, she has a great yeah. interior design. No, great, that's basically great it. Style, great style. Great yeah. taste. Absolutely. But I love the fact that, you know, this is a movie that just that just wallows in incredible dialogue and incredible mm. dialogue scenes and exchanges. There are three standout scenes in this movie for me. There's a scene with Chris Messina's lawyer. Uh, there's a scene with Diane <laughs> Weist in a nursing home. And there's a scene with Dinklage, uh, again, which we talked about with Rosamund Pike. I don't want to give too much away here, but uh, they are you know, worth the price of, a, you know, it's on Netflix, so it's free, but you know, well, free-ish. It's part of your subscription, but it'd be nominally worth the price of admission alone. Just watching these actors play with yeah. the, the dialogue and, and masks drop, masks get put back up again. And it's just, it's just absolutely wonderful. I loved it. It's one, I know we're only in February, but I've seen about five films already this year that have absolutely grabbed me um, by the chaffers. And this is one of them. I loved it. I thought it was terrific. We gave it four stars. Our esteemed leader, uh, Terry White, gave us four stars as mm. well. So you know it's good. And four stars then for I Care A Lot. By the way, don't don't search around a lot for interview for reviews of this movie. After I'd seen it, I was just Googling some reviews of it. And I stumbled upon one on a website I won't care to name that gave away the ending of the film because the reviewer disagreed with the, with the film's politics. Wow. Now, that wow. is absolutely unconscionable for me that is beyond the pale and is ridiculous so just be careful tread carefully folks when searching for reviews of i care a lot in fact don't read any just listen to us it's fantastic we care a lot about i care a lot four stars next up is willie's wonderland this one is the one in which nick cage who basically is playing himself at this point takes a job as a janitor in a sort of ramshackle theme park filled with giant 
animatronic monsters that come to life at night and try and kill him and a bunch of other people. Ah. Remember that conversation we had about Nick Cage in the podcast a few weeks Hmm. ago? Uh, We were talking about people who make lots of DTV schlock and James, you were quite critical of some of the movies he's made and I was like, no, 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 Nick Cage makes, you know, yeah, he makes a lot of schlock but a lot of it is really considered and a lot of it's, you know, like, you know, Colorado Space and Mandy and, you know, Willy's Wonderland looks like it's a lot of fun and yeah, yeah, he makes a lot of terrible films but this one, this looks like it could be a lot of fun and no, it's absolutely fucking diabolical but what do you guys think? (laughs) I didn't hate it because I I thought it was kind of self-aware enough in its craziness that I was sort of willing to allow some some room. I will say that the first, the opening scene is one of the worst things I've ever seen. The opening scene just <laughs> felt like it was done on 50p in a packet of crisps and like they, the they just put it in as a placeholder. I mean, the rest of it, I'm not saying it's big budget, but the rest of it at least has <laughs> some degree of, I don't know, design or coherence or something. But that first scene, I genuinely wanted to burn my TV. Like, it was just yeah. awful. So do stick with it past that to get a better idea of it. But it's, yeah, it's not entirely coherent, but it's just this idea of this mute guy coming into town in a fancy car. Um, He ends up, uh, uh, ridiculous, owing the local mechanic some money, so he has to stay in town overnight and fix up this. It's not really an amusement park. It's all one building, isn't it, for budget reasons, I suppose. So it's kind of like a themed restaurant with animatronic figures, and you go there for your birthday party and they all sing to you. Unless, of course... There's some kind of Satanist nonsense going on and they've all been taken (laughs) over by the ghosts of serial killers and they're right to kill you. I mean, hypothetically. So Mm. it's it's a film that is going for something. It's trying for something. I don't think it's quite as uh, lazy, frankly, as some of the Nicolas Cage films we've seen. It's got a budget of, again, about, you know, Nicolas Cage's salary plus £10, I think. So it's not rolling in money, but it does try some stuff with what it has. And I quite appreciated that. Mm. So yeah, I don't I don't love it, but I didn't hate it. Mm. Um, <laughs> I was well worth your time. Well worth your time. If you had oh, clearly big, yes you I mean you sold yeah. me on it. I'm hundred yeah. percent gonna go and watch it after the storming recommendation I've just had from yeah. you too. Like oh, it's, yeah. yeah. It's not I've seen worse Dumb slasher movies, for sure. Helen, recommended. I have seen worst films in my life. (laughs) No, but like it's, you know, Nicolas Cage like beating a stuffed teddy bear to death, essentially. I'm I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, I'm actually that I'm probably here for. So Yeah, but no, it's still rubbish. (laughs) Um this I thought was terrible, but uh but our esteemed uh colleague Nick Dissemblian gave this three stars. Don't listen to him, he's an idiot. Maniac, an absolute (laughs) maniac, and he must be stopped before he hurts himself and others. Uh three stars then for Willie's Wonderland. And the last film we're gonna go into uh detail on this week is on Amazon Prime right now. Uh, it slipped out last week, uh, almost unannounced, and it's yet another time loop movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of a sucker for time loop movies. Palm mm. Springs is coming coming out oh here gosh, so uh, later in the year and is just incredible. And this is the map of tiny perfect things, and um, it's in very kind of Palm Springsy territory in a in a way. Jimbo, what do you think of this? Uh, the main thing that I think from this is that this is the day where the intern who does the plot synopses, I think, took the day off. The synopsis for this film simply reads, two teens who live the same day repeatedly, enabling them to create the titular map. That is the synopsis. <laughs> I mean, 
there's phoning it in and there's phoning it in. But anyway, let's move away from that. So yes, this does star Catherine Newton, who I would say you all know from Freaky, but of course you don't because it hasn't come out yet. But you may remember her from other things such as Three Billboards. Supernatural. Um, <clears throat> and, and supernatural, yes, Helen. Uh, she and Kyle Allen play two teens. Kyle Allen plays Mark. She plays Margaret. Question: Why call your two central characters Mark and Margaret? That's very unnecessarily confusing. But let's move on from that. Mark is wandering around town. He seems to be psychic at the beginning until you realise he is stuck in a Groundhog Day esque live die repeat Edge of Tomorrow type time loop, living the same day over and over and over with it resetting at midnight. However, one day he notices someone doing something out of the ordinary, breaking the pattern that is of course Catherine newton's margaret and she is also stuck in the time loop so you have a buddy movie of two people in a time loop which would be brilliant for me to talk about my facts that i had prepared for groundhog day because that was all also originally written that way with both uh phil and rita stuck in the time loop but you can hear more about that next week when i roll out this week's fact <laughs> but then oh, they decided it would be best to give rita no character development whatsoever <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> But anyway, back to this one, back to this one. So this is kind of at heart a road trip, a road movie where the characters don't go anywhere. So they take a trip around this town and they decide that they're going to find, they find moments of sort of sweet perfection, like an eagle swooping in to pull up fish out of a lake and they decide to walk around the town and find the perfect moments and create a map which they have to redraw every day obviously uh, of these tiny perfect things in this little town um and obviously the two are slightly different he is this sort of like uh self-absorbed but generally decent doofus guy and she's this sassy spiky loner with some emotional baggage it's not like a redemption arc type thing because they're both very pleasant from the get-go um and so you don't have that kind of art but it makes them very nice company mm. um and Obviously, this is a, it's like Groundhog Day, but twee, sentimental, and aimed at teenagers. So I am absolutely here for this film. <laughs> I fucking loved it. It's sweet. It's whimsical. It's wistful. It's touching. It's all of these things. It's maybe a little bit heavy-handed at moments, but honestly, the fact that it's so self-aware, I think, makes up for that. Like, yeah. it's absolutely layered with pop culture references. And every time they do something cliche, they deliberately point to it mm. and point to the you know the point of reference which i think is lovely i mean it's a groundhog day movie that knows about groundhog day yeah 100 percent. So, and live die repeat which i keep calling that but edge of tomorrow like it references yeah. it didn't talk about russian doll but that's all happy death day that's no, pretty or, much the or, only or one the episode of supernatural where they also all do this. the episode of supernatural was she in that episode of supernatural no she wasn't no she came in well, later that would have been too much to ask i guess but <laughs> <laughs> but you know all the other characters in this kind of fade a little bit into the background but i think that's mm. kind of right because they see them all as kind of cardboard non-people which they kind of are they're just yeah. people stuck in a and they are the only two people in the world and i love that idea of you know a sort of a relationship building between two people when they are almost the only people in the world i think at one point they say they're castaways but they're cast away in time and that's it's lovely like i i had an absolute whale of a time through this and there is kind of character growth there like without getting into spoilers like they yes. do start to deal with some stuff in their lives and mm -hmm. and i thought that was nicely done because they are teenagers they're not supposed to be looking for some great philosophical awakening mm -hmm. here but i like that it it sort of happens in small ways anyway and that you get these moments of grace where they connect with a family member or you know a, a school friend or just have that little kind of moment that that kind of means something and does kind of open their eyes a little bit more and i thought that was really nicely played i also think i, I don't want to talk too much about pam springs because my god we're going to be talking a lot about that in a couple of months when it comes <laughs> out but but there is something interesting in these films where two people are traveling mm -hmm. through time and where they, where they can talk about it with each other i think it mm. gives you something extra that Grand Talk day didn't have and it sort of yeah it does allow for a little bit more 
relationship building, sparking yeah. off each other, whatever it's, else. Th there's a type of intimacy that mm. is so unique to this situation where there's no one else in the world who can possibly understand yeah. or, let's be honest, remember anything. Um, it's Yeah, it's, it's quite special. Also, this is a film that has a dog called Chewbacca. And if for no other reason than that, watch this film. Yeah. Yes, I think we're all pretty much, we all sound like we're in the four-star camp at this one. I thought mm. it was yeah. it was a, a delight. Uh, I'm not sure which film is at a, more of a disadvantage. This because it's going to come out before Palm Springs. No, I guess, this, I guess this film's maybe in a way spoiling Palm Springs' soup a little bit. Maybe. I think, I think they'll both work. I think they're both strong enough mm. to There's stand on their own. There's room for both. Yeah I, yeah, I really think so. Yeah, I love a time loop movie. Oh, so, so I. You should watch genuinely Mystery Spot. I think it's season three, Supernatural. Mm -hmm. oh, so it's a great, great time loop <laughs> episode. Um, there might be nipples. There's a bit in the shower. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Fully on board. Fully on board <laughs> then. Uh, five stars then for Mystery Spot, uh, which yes. is one of the greatest Supernatural nipply episodes uh, of them all. <laughs> and I think four stars, four stars then for the map of Tiny Perfect Things. Uh, and I've just been told I've got a car waiting outside, not to be all Hollywood on you, but I've got a car oh waiting outside to whisk me back to set. Oh so I'm going to have to <laughs> wrap it up there. Um, and in Dispatches, there are a few films out this week as well. Um, so Sia's very controversial movie, Music, uh, which is out, which is about a young autistic girl which has been criticised for its depiction of autism um, is out this week and that got two stars and Helen the conclusion to the to all the boys I've loved before thanks for everything Judy Newmar uh, trilogy is P.S. I still love you yes P.S. I still love you Wong Fu um, is out <laughs> Uh, and I was out on the on Amazon no Amazon Netflix. Netflix. I always Netflix. get confused with Netflix. It's on Netflix, Netflix uh, last week, and we're giving that three, I think. Yeah, that but, seems yeah. about right. It's it's yeah. adorable. I mean, uh, Lana Condor and Noah Centino are are still completely delightful together. Um, and it is a film about kind of growing up, which I think deals with some stuff in some nice ways. But if you haven't watched the other two, do not watch this first do lead in with the other two will not I've stand never alone seen, uh, you, James, i can't film. stress enough how much these are up your alley you'll absolutely love them uh, right, but yeah it's I'm it's told. incredibly charming and they're just they're they're great together these two are superstars in the making i i, I would cast them in all the things so um so yeah it, it's it's lovely it's 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 sweet and silly and lovely much like myself. Yes. <laughs> Apart from the, the sweet and the silly and the lovely part, uh, you're pretty much spot on. Yes, it sounds great. Sounds absolutely right up my boulevard as well. And then, of course, we gave three stars. In fact, you gave three stars, Hell's Bells, to, to Olivia. Yeah, it's it's about uh, Roald Dahl and his family. Um, Patricia Neal, of course, the Hollywood star, was his wife. And it's the two of them struggling with their careers. You know, her she kind of stepped back from her career to have their children. Um, his writing career at this point had, has not yet taken off. His latest book at that point was James and the Giant Peach, which was not initially a big success. Um, but they're hit hard by the illness of their daughter, Olivia, hence the name, who's played by Darcy Ewart. And, and it becomes a sort of family drama about how they deal with all of that. So it's I mean, it's the latest in a series of, you know, biopics of great British children's novelists. Um, it's not up to the standard of, say, Finding Neverland for me. Um, I, I find uh, Hugh Bonneville's performance very good, but his um, prosthetics are incredibly distracting. And I think Keely Hall's actually probably is, is the single best performance in it. She's fantastic. But it just doesn't always quite hang together. And it takes some liberties with timeline as well. So, mm. so good, but not. I think essential viewing. Good but not right, as Roy Walker would once have said. On catchphrase, uh, three stars in for two, Olivia. 
Um, so did he meet Patricia Neal before he met Taryn Stamp? Basically what I'm asking was, was it a case of Neal before Sod? <laughs> and on that note, that is it for this remotely recorded, even more so than usual, <laughs> Empire podcast. Join us next week when I'll be back in my little lair in Greenwich for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by... I think, because I don't have my notes here, I'm pretty sure we'll be joined by Kathy Ann, director of Dead Pigs, which is on Mubi. And we'll be talking about that next week as well. And I believe next week we're also going to be joined by Wesley Snipes. (gasps) The daywalker himself. At any point in the interview, did you just say to him, Teddy Bear? (laughs) No. No? I did not say that, no. I didn't. Did you talk about motherfuckers always ice skating uphill? Oh, yes. Oh, good man. Join us next week for that. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from what are your squadcast names this week? Punxsutawney Phil. He has spelled it correctly at long last. It is (laughs) Nurb himself, the great big fucking Nurb, James Dyer. (laughs) Yes. Be sure to tune in next week to hear this week's fact. Good lord. <laughs> Hang on, it feels like we're stuck in a time loop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that your fact? We're stuck in a time loop. We just That's have to hear it, your yeah. facts over and over and over, over again. Over and over and over again until you die. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, it is goodbye from a newly minted author, Women versus Helen. Thank you. Bye bye. Goodbye. Toodaloo. Goodbye. Yeah. And it's goodbye from me, McHewitt the Brave. I'm off somewhere now. That might be Secret a clue. location. Secret location. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows where I'm going? Where could you be? <laughs> where, where could he be? Creepy where could he be? <laughs> anyway, I'm off to work on my new book, which is simply entitled Men Have Pointy Bits. Women have pointy bits. <laughs> Why can't we all just get along? Thanks for wow. listening. See you next time. Bye. If only you'd written my intro, Chris. My God. Wow. Wow.